This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. For those folks who do not listen to the end of the program, I just want to give you a heads up now that this is the final episode before we take our annual spring break. We're going to return with fresh episodes in the middle of May. We're going to roll out the final nine episodes of Season 4 starting sometime then. Stay tuned to BOA for details on that. But don't go anywhere just yet, because before we depart on our spring break, we have one more massive episode here for you this week, an amazing interview. Our guest is William Zabel, creator of the website ColumbineConspiracy.com. We're going to be marking the 10th anniversary of the Columbine school shooting with William. He has spent the last decade investigating this event, and he believes there is much, much more to the story than what the mainstream media is telling us. This is truly a riveting conversation. We cover a wealth of different avenues related to Columbine, and I think folks are really going to enjoy this one. We usually don't delve into the conspiracy realm, but once I saw that the Columbine anniversary was coming up, I really wanted to discuss it a little bit. It's a story that's always struck me as kind of fishy, a little bit weird, and I did a search online to find someone who's been looking at the Columbine school shooting from a conspiratorial angle, and William Zabel emerged as the ideal guest here for this week's episode. William's going to detail his findings and his theories on what really happened in Colorado on April 20th, 1999. Were there more than two shooters? Was there government involvement? Perhaps a cover-up of some kind? How about mind control? Was there some of that at work? Or perhaps some kind of paranormal influence? We're going to examine all of these possibilities and much, much more in a mind-blowing, thought-provoking, and at times revelatory interview, which may have you looking at the Columbine shooting in a whole new light. I have a feeling this episode is going to create a ton of buzz because I was just blown away by what William had to say. I'm not quite sure what I believe anymore after our over two-hour conversation, and I'm sure a lot of other folks who hear this week's episode are going to be thinking twice about the Columbine school shooting. For those of you who are unfamiliar with William Zabel, allow me to give you a little bit of background on him. William Zabel has been a graphic designer since 1996, working mostly with post-production graphics for television and film. He has spent 20 years doing political research into government corruption, murder, mind control, and government waste and abuse. He has researched abuse by military and civilian law enforcement, including the Panama invasion, Waco, Ruby Ridge, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Columbine Massacre, and the Virginia Tech shooting. He's also researched many paranormal events, including the strange events at Denver International Airport, hauntings in local Denver buildings and historical sites, and spent time with his UFO friends staring up at the sky at night. He's got two websites. The main one we're going to be talking about tonight is columbineconspiracy.com. Pretty simple, columbineconspiracy.com, all one word. 
and then the overall hub website covering a myriad of different paranormal stories and potential conspiracies can be found at phantomchasers.com. Much like the previous website, all one word, phantomchasers.com. Check them out, a wealth of amazing material on both those great sites. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 10th, 2009. It's ultra fresh. William Zabel talking about the Columbine Conspiracy on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. I think we're going to have a very intriguing and interesting conversation here this week. Our guest is the man behind the website and hopefully soon to be full within your hands book, ColumbineConspiracy.com. He's been doing a tremendous amount of research into the infamous Columbine shooting, which will be seeing its 10-year anniversary uh, when you're listening to this episode. We're going to try and get it posted on the 10-year anniversary. Uh, as I said, he's the creator of ColumbineConspiracy.com, which is part of the overall web system, I guess you could say, under the title of PhantomChasers.com, which looks at a bunch of other different conspiracies. But tonight we're going to be focusing solely on the Columbine shooting and what really went on there. I've always felt that something kind of strange happened there in Columbine that we don't quite know the full story of. Our guest here has his own opinions on it. Uh, some of them are mirrored to mine. He's going to, I'm sure, add a wealth of information that I'd never heard of before. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. He is William Zabel, as I said, the man behind ColumbineConspiracy.com. Welcome to the show, William. Oh, thank you. Nice to be there. Well, I guess before we start out, Bill, uh, you know, why don't we just do your standard bio background? You know, who is William Zabel? How did you get interested in the Columbine story and, and sort of embark on this on this research expedition you've been on? Okay. Uh, well, um, I come from an art background, graphic designer. Uh, in 1999, uh, I decided, well, actually in 98, I decided to go back to school for film and video because I wanted to do motion graphics. In 99, at the time of the Columbine shooting, I was both attending school and teaching classes at uh, Red Rocks Community College out in Aurora, Colorado. Mm -hmm. We had a campus out there. They also had one in Lakewood, and that's how I met out, up with some former Columbine students the day of the shooting. And I had one of them in my class, and that is how all this uh, began. So really, my, uh, my background, I've always studied conspiracies, but I never w was really active in researching them other than just collecting government documents. Uh, anytime something new would come out, I would go to the library or file a FOIA and, and get a document, and then I'd just stack it away and read it at a later time. Uh, so from my background, I've always been more of the armchair researcher until Columbine, and then that's when I became active. All right. Now, I guess most folks know the story of Columbine, but for those folks, you know, who've been living under a rock for the last 10 years or who forgot about it somehow, I mean, that happens, I guess. Tell people sort of what the mainstream story is for Columbine first, and then we'll dig into what you think happened. Okay. Well, the official story that the media and government both put forth is that on April 20th at 11.21 a.m., uh, two Columbine High School seniors, and Columbine High School, by the way, for people that are not even sure where it's at, is southwest Denver, about eight miles. It actually sits in unincorporated Jefferson County, which butts up next to Denver County in the city of Denver. Mm -hmm. And at 1121, these two high school seniors, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, 
uh, open fire outside the back side of the school uh, on the west side uh, on a grassy knoll overlooking the parking lot. From there, it is put forth that they went into the school on the upper level. This school is a two-level building. It's set on a hill. Where they shot up and down both of the main hallways that are shaped like an L, one going northwest to southeast and the other one going northeast to southwest. From there, these two went into the library where they killed the majority of the students that died that day, 10 students. From there, they left, went down to the cafeteria, and tried to blow up a bomb that they had supposedly planted earlier, uh, some believe right before first lunch, in the cafeteria under a table. After this happened and they couldn't blow this bomb up, the official story is they walked up down the hallways trying to get into classrooms, shooting at people that were fleeing, and then finally gave up where they went into the library. And right around a little bit afternoon, about 12:15 p.m. Uh, Mountain Standard Time, they supposedly, according to the official story, sat down by a couple of bookshelves and put their guns to their heads and killed themselves. Now the official story is is that in the end, they killed 12 students and one teacher and injured 25 others before they killed themselves in the library. And the shooting is, uh, according to the official story, went from 11.21 to a little bit afternoon and ended. All right. Now, at what point did you, as a researcher, start to feel that, you know, there was something more going on here than, than what we just heard as the official story? For me, it was that afternoon. Uh, it was later in the afternoon. Since we were so busy with classes, we had tours and everything, so none of us even heard heard about the shooting till probably about 2, 3 in the afternoon. Uh, one of the students in my class, he had been on a cell phone, he came in, he says, oh man, he says, this jacked up. And I said, you mean the shooting? And, I, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, I said, you know, there's no telling why these kids do this. And he says, yeah, but it's weird. He says, they're putting it off on these two punks. And and he says, I just talked to my sister and she's talking like three or four guys. And and then I'm like, okay, now this is beginning to sound weird. So I said, well, you know, I said, you know, let's talk to her and see. And he tried calling her back and couldn't get a hold of her. And uh, she was a Columbine student, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so later that afternoon, he had already left for the day. And I thought, well, I'd like to find out if this girl saw something more than what the news is saying. And she showed up that evening uh, during our evening classes, and she goes, um, I, I, my brother uh, told me about you, and he says, I thought I'd come over and tell you the story. She goes, this is really weird. She goes, they're talking about these just these two kids that were shooting, and she goes, I saw three guys and maybe four. She goes, I don't know. The fourth one may have been shooting. He may have been with the others or what, but she goes, they don't have everybody. And I said, well, have you talked to the police? She goes, yeah, I was interviewed. And she goes, I gave my statement. But she goes, they just kind of ignored me like I, 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 you know, like I was an idiot or something. And I said, well, you know, I said, sometimes they have a tendency to do this. Sometimes if the cops believe they have their suspect, they just kind of cut people off. Yeah. Other times there's something sinister to it, but not all the times. So I've met some cops that, you know, they think for sure they've got their guy. So... At that point, I thought, you know what, I need to do more with this. So I cleaned up. I thought, you know what, let's go home. And, you know, at home, uh, my grandmother had already started recording the news for me, so I got some good recording going. 
I got home, and I don't know, it must have been about 8 o'clock, a friend of mine that I, I had gone to college with back in 96 uh, calls me, and she says, have you seen this Columbine thing? And I and I said, yeah. I, I said, another school shooting. And she started in telling me about how her daughter was telling her what was going on. And I said, well, how does your daughter know about this? And she goes, oh, she goes, uh, I live down here. And she goes, my daughter graduated in 98. And I said, wow, news to me. I never knew she lived down there. Mm-hmm. And she started telling me, she goes, you've got to hear this story. And she put her daughter on the phone, and she started telling me about this. She goes, they got this thing down to these two kids in the trench coat mafia. She goes, my friends are telling me there were shooters all over the school almost simultaneously. And I'm like, well, maybe it sounds like that. She goes, oh, no. She goes, you ought to hear some of these stories. And so it propelled from there. Okay. And uh, I went down there, and I started listening to some of these kids, and they're talking about shooters coming in the front doors on Pierce Street, which Jeffco never admits to, but is in the witness statements. It's actually in there where uh, people in the main office saw suspects come in the front doors, and it just snowballed from there. I mean, it just I just continued on from there. That was the anchor point. Okay, interesting. All right. See, it sounds like you're you're so close to the action there that you're getting a lot of interesting firsthand type reports and stuff. And now just to be clear, I guess, for folks who are listening who are going to want to check out your website, some of the sections that we're going to be talking about haven't been uploaded to the site yet. So uh, when do you expect that the whole thing really to be together Uh, for people to look at? All but the last two chapters will be up in the next two weeks. All right. Sounds great. And the last two chapters are really just kind of conclusion chapters. Uh, The second to last one talks about the move for a new world order and global government and gun control, and then the last chapter is just basic conclusions where I think it's going to go from here and that kind of thing. Sounds good. This is a really complicated story, and to try and untangle it is already sort of <laughs> making me nervous. But yeah. one of the first things you have here in on the website, ColumbineConspiracy.com, is uh, a chapter titled The Phone Call, which details a call to an emergency center, a local hospital, warning about the Columbine massacre or predicting it. Um, I guess tell people about that because this is something that I had never heard of and uh, it's sort of in a way the linchpin of, of your whole theory. So I guess tell people a little bit about the phone call that precipitated the whole attack. Okay. Uh, the phone call in question, I received that information from the guy who was actually on the telephone line when the call came in. Uh, I found this information about eight months after the Columbine shooting. This person heard me on talk radio, and and he called the radio station, and they called me after the program and said, hey, this guy just called. Call him. He's got all this information. Here's how the phone call laid out. What we have in Denver is is a thing called the Denver Disaster Network, uh, Network Hotline. It is a phone system that Denver area police departments can use to call in a disaster to all the hospitals so that they're ready for, you know, mass casualties. Mm-hmm. The phone system is on a token system. The No one hospital gets the call every time. Uh, one hospital will get it. Then if it becomes a major, like, you know, like a nuclear bomb going off somewhere in Colorado, then they'll call the next hospital and say, you need to be ready too. In this case, Presbyterian St. Luke's, was the hospital that got the call this time. They were told to prepare for mass casualties from a shooting in progress at a Denver area high school. So they got, they rolled out their Harvey teams. If you've ever heard, you know, about the Harvey teams, these are the guys that can resuscitate people, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
and they were ready to go. Very strange things were happening happening at Presbyterian St. Luke's. There was actually a second call as well. The second call came from the Denver Police Department. It basically reiterated the first phone call. It kind of bothered them a little bit. The telephone technician wasn't in on anything after the first call. They booted him out of the booth. Uh, the hospital administration, Denver Police, did. So hmm. he kind of was out of the loop after that. He was told to go take an early lunch. Uh, the hospital was put down on a restricted access because supposedly part of the second call had to do with a threat to the hospital itself, though he's not sure, you know, why anybody would call and threaten the hospital on that line because only police can use it. They're the only ones that have access to it, yeah. which made him very worried, and he was very scared about that. Many people uh, in federal and local law enforcement went in and out of the hospital before any Columbine patients got there, which they're not supposed to be able to do. Cops aren't even supposed to be able to just walk in, nor federal agents. Okay. Uh, once they go into lockdown, that's it. He went through the whole day watching this thing unfold. Uh, I think two of the 25 victims went to PSL. The rest of them went to other area hospitals. But he talked about the weirdness of it. Um, you can see it. It's actually in the chapter on the website. He goes into great detail. Um, ultimately, what happened was that when he tried to inquire more about the phone call and which law enforcement agency would have called that day, because like he's saying, this is pre-shooting phone call. Yeah. Somebody knew something. And he met with a lot of resistance, basically people that had worked at the hospital quit. I went down there, and everybody but the security staff was canned at that hospital. Oh, wow. That's unprecedented. I've talked to other hospitals, and they knew about the mass firings at PSL, and they said it's unprecedented. They've never heard about that many people being canned like that. That's strange. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've kind of established here this early phone call that, that is uh, part of your argument that something else was going on here. It's a very interesting piece of evidence. From there, I guess, we've heard the official story, and now we're starting to hear some of these other outside elements that are making things look pretty fishy at Columbine. Tell me, and feel free to, to add as much detail as you want, and we'll get into some of the side tangents involved in the story, but I guess just tell me what you think happened at Columbine that day and how it contrasts with the official story. Okay. Looking at a comparison contrast... The official story wants you to believe two people managed to hold over 150 cops at bay for 45 minutes, all the while shooting people in the library and the hallways and shooting the teacher who was running down the science hallway. That's the official story. Okay. What I learned, and this is directly from eyewitnesses that I talked to, plus their own government documents, their own witness statements, is that multiple shooters came in multiple doors at the same time. This was a hit, just like a bank robbery or anything on that scale, where if you want to rob a bank or you want to do harm to somebody that you know might be smart enough to get out of your way, you hit it fast and hard. Our military does it. Our law enforcement does it. Bank robbers do it. The school has five main entrances that the public can use. Witnesses described suspects coming in all five entrances, all dressed in black, with black face masks on. Now, compare that to the official story. Harrison Klebold came in just the west upper doors. 
went through the school, then went back into the library and killed themselves. Two, Harrison Klebold may have had trench coats on, but according to the official story, they did not have face masks on. But almost every other student is talking about suspects dressed in black BDU-type clothes, not trench coats, and wearing face masks. Now, sometimes the witnesses are not very clear on the face mask. Sometimes they say it's like the, uh, you know, the nylon pullover ones. Other ones say it's like what you would wear if you're skiing, the big, clear plastic ones. Yeah. Well, we know who else wears those type of masks, too. Yeah. Yeah. The government. <laughs> there you go. And you have witnesses uh, who are describing weapons that do not match what Harrison Klebold had. And I will give you a quick gun inventory. Harrison Klebold carried four weapons with them that day, uh, two double-barrel sawed-off shotguns, a high-point uh, 9mm rifle, which if anyone's ever seen it, it's a short gray rifle. It fires 9mm shells. Believe it or not, a lot of kids like to use those to hunt with. You know, weird. it's really weird. Um, the other weapon was a Tech 9 and a lot of kids know what Tech 9s are, especially if they're in the gangs. They know what they are. And, you know, they're not street sweepers per se, but you know, if you really have it in for some homie, you can do some damage with it. <laughs> Those are the four weapons that they allege they had, plus, of course, all the pipe bombs they made. Now, compare that to the witness statements and witnesses, especially one senior who was in the Army Reserve, described MP5s because the suspect walked right by him while he was hiding next to the lockers. And he says, I clearly saw the MP5, and the police asked him, are you sure? He said, yeah, I'm very sure. I'm in the Army Reserve. I know what an MP5 looks like. So either Harrison Klebold had a weapon that they discarded and the police never found, which I find highly unlikely, yeah. since they scoured that whole property for months afterwards, or we have a suspect who has access to an MP5. Now, compare the official story of Harrison Klebold. Uh, Harris was 5'11", and Klebold was six foot even. Okay. Uh, Harris had brown hair, while Klebold had a reddish brown hair. Very thin and lanky, both of them very thin. This does not match many of the witness descriptions in the government documents themselves. Like I said, almost everything that I tell you either comes from the government documents themselves or comes from people I talk to. It's not internet rumor. It's not something I found on a website somewhere. It comes straight from the horse's mouth. All right. So that's a lot better than a lot of other conspiracy theories that people have heard out there. I'm sure. I, I, yeah, think, my, I, I, think, my, I think my version of events is a lot more short up than other people's. So here is the unofficial story of witnesses that were there that day, and some of these witnesses were police officers responding to the scene. Witnesses described suspects as short as five foot four. One suspect was very fat and ugly and had a mustache and his face looked like a rat. Hardly Harrison Klebold. Now remember Harrison Klebold wore their trench coats, but Harris had on a natural born selection t shirt which was white with black printing, and Klebold had on just a black t shirt. Okay. And both were wearing blue jeans. But one suspect was wearing a tie-dyed shirt and a trench coat, and he was six foot three. And he had blonde hair, kind of a real short blonde hair, and he had crooked teeth. 
According to the autopsy reports, Harris and Klebold both had perfect teeth, except for Harris, which most of them were missing because of the little shotgun suicide thing. So you have descriptions here that don't match. Hold on now. What's the shotgun suicide thing? I've never heard this before. What are you trying well, to get something? Well, the problem that they have with the suicide is, is with Harris supposedly put the shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger, but he was only missing two of his front teeth from that, and he only had a hole an inch in diameter in his head. Weird. And that's why people don't buy that. Okay. So that's why I say that you'll see it in the accomplices chapter on the website because people – I guess I have to expl uh, be stopped and explain that because sometimes I use terms that I use in my book, and I don't stop to realize that no one's ever heard this before. Don't worry about it. No problem. That's why I'm here. <laughs> okay. Go on so, now. You also have a suspect um, who was on the roof of the school, which Jefferson County denies to this day. They say, no, it was a maintenance man. Well, I found there was actually three different people based on eyewitness testimony, all in three, three different locations, and the school has multiple roofs. There's three different levels to the roofs there. The new section, which includes the library, uh, which was built, I think they modified that in 96 or something like that. The old part, which is the front of the school, which is the science, math classrooms, and the administration office, then the gymnasium. Multiple witnesses talk about a suspect on the gymnasium roof with a rifle with a sniper scope on it, dressed in a white dress shirt that, quote, appears to be something that a firefighter or police officer would wear because it had patches on it. Hmm. Multiple eyewitnesses to that. The other one is a suspect with a black shirt with South Park characters on the front, with a black face mask on, with a long rifle that appears to be an automatic weapon. Now I get into that later into the trench coat mafia and that. The other suspect is on the front side of the school, wearing a trench coat and a blue shirt and blue jeans, standing on the roof right above the administration offices, shooting towards Pierce Street. Huh. Multiple witnesses saw him. Okay. So, so now that's your, your area of shooters in multiple locations that don't fit the uh, official story. All right. Now, not to jump ahead too much, but if your story is accurate and the official version is is a cover-up, then, you know, what became of all these people, you know, when the official shooting, if you will, ended? You know, did they just assimilate back into the kids and, and they were taken out, you know, by the cops and everything and no one really said anything? There were actually three different scenarios that happened. One is what Steve Davis, the uh, lieutenant uh, who's in charge of public relations, said the day of the shooting. He says, I'm getting reports from my snipers through their scopes that they can see the suspects changing clothes through the windows, and it's our fear that they're going to co-mingle with the students and come out. That's why they started patting down the students that day. Okay. That's uh, And that news footage will be on my website because I actually bought this news footage from CNN so I can legally use it. All right. And it will all be up there, and you can hear these cops talking about this. Scenario number two is the one that is not real tight, but I do have some news footage that may support it. And I believe the cops may have taken out other suspects and then brought them out on stretchers. One police officer you can hear in, in the dispatch tape say, we have one suspect down, we're bringing him out on a stretcher. Very clear 
in the dispatch tape. And then you never hear anything more. But okay. there is actual news footage of a guy dressed in black being brought out on a stretcher by SWAT officers huh. to go with that dispatch tape. The other scenario is, and this is actually provable too, I have the news footage of it. They arrested, of course, you know, they arrested those three teenagers in Clements Park that were dressed like punks and, you know, and, and they came to see the shooting and all that. And, of course, those kids, I, I, I don't think to this day they were involved. I think they they knew something was going to happen because I think all the kids in Denver knew something was going to happen at one of the schools and they were just waiting. So I don't think that those three teenagers arrested, they call themselves the splatter punks. I don't think they were involved. There's nobody that ever saw them go in the school or come out or go in with a gun or anything. So I kind of dismissed them as suspects, but I do think they knew something was going to happen. However, two other kids from Columbine were arrested that day, and that is Nate Dykeman and Chris Morris. And both of those students flunked their polygraph, which, by the way, will be available on my website under the government documents. And these are polygraphs administered by the FBI. They lie about Chris Morris, the government does. The official story is, is that Chris Morris took over the trench coat mafia in at the beginning of the 1999 school year after the founder, Joe Stair, had graduated last year. Chris Morris worked with Harrison Klebold at Black Jack's Pizza, and they said on the day of the shooting he had gone home early, so the police, when the shooting began, went over to his house and they wanted to use him to try and negotiate if it turned into a hostage situation. Yeah. That is a total fabricated lie. I've got the news footage where he is arrested inside the school. You can see them parading him out of the school and taking him all the way down to a police car. Then Channel 9 News does a close-up of him being read his rights and put in the back of the police car. And guess what kind of a shirt he's wearing? The South Park one? The South Park one. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The other one is Nate Dykeman. There's less really known about where he was specifically. He was supposed to have been in choir class when the shooting began, but he wasn't in class, and nobody knew where he really was. But when the uh, SWAT team members arrested him, he was in the main office hiding under a desk. Now, Nate Dykeman... Actually, when he was interviewed by police and failed the polygraph, they had called his uh, stepdad and wanted another polygraph and found out that he had run away. What he had done was that he had ran away from home in his pickup truck. Uh, it broke down down in Oklahoma somewhere, so he caught a bus down to Florida. Once he got down to Florida, he refused to talk to anybody. The news actually did a little bit of an interview with him. But he only talked about Harrison Klebold and how crazy they were. He wouldn't see anything else. And that was the last of it. The police dropped it. Weird. Now, with the risk of going too far into towards the end, I guess you could say, of, the con of your conspiracy theory or your theory, you know, why would the police there in, in Littleton just all of a sudden say that it was these two guys if, if all these different witnesses and everything say there were other people involved? Well, there's multiple reasons, but the biggest reason is it's a blackmail operation. People do not know the history of what happened to Harrison Klebold, and I don't know if you know this story too well or not, uh, depending on how well you followed Columbine, but Harrison Klebold, the ones accused of this crime, were actually arrested in January of 98 for breaking into a van to steal electronic equipment. And, of course, you know, they went on their little 
probation and did their little anger management classes and, and community service and all that. What people do not know and was witnessed by a woman who to this day will not give her name to any researcher says that Harrison Klebold got the Rodney King treatment when they were arrested. Huh. And there is a lot of information that I got from students that suggested the kids at Columbine knew this. They knew what happened to Harrison Klebold at the van arrest, that they basically got nightsticked half to death. Harrison, his intake statement when he was arrested for the van break-in, is asked by the intake officer whether he's okay. And he says, it's been a hell of a night, and I really hurt bad. And the, and the, and the officer notes that in the intake paperwork, which is also available to the public, that Harris seems to have multiple bruises on his body. Okay. So it looks to me, and this is my theory at this point, but there are students and parents whispering about this. The reason why the government wouldn't go after the others is because the others had just as much on Jeffco as Jeffco had on them. I mean, Chris Morris and a few others actually told Jeffco. They said, you know, you can believe we had something to do with Columbine, but guess what? We know what you had to do with the van break-in arrest. And when I talked to John Stone, one of the, uh, the former sheriff of Jefferson County who was the head of the sheriff's department during the Columbine thing, he absolutely was uh, – this what t drove him to drink was the van uh, arrest, not just the shooting itself. And I asked him why, and he said that van uh, arrest should have never happened. That was his words to me. And I thought, wait a minute, they're breaking into a van. What choice do you have as a cop? And then, and then I found out another thing about the van arrest. The guy whose van they broke into worked for a security company that does work for the FBI, the CIA, and most of the local police departments around there. And it's a very controversial company. It's been up before congressional review. My theory, and this is my theory only, I, I can't prove it yet, but there's a lot of people down the Columbine area that believe the way I do on this. Harrison Klebold were set up. This guy left this van full of electronic equipment sitting at the RTD bus park where you park your car, the park and ride, yeah. in the middle of the night. Just left it there. And people don't believe you just leave a company van full of high-tech electronic equipment in a parking ride. Okay. I think the van instant was a setup. A setup? A pure setup. Yep. And, all right, now extrapolate on that a little bit. A setup? <laughs> I think it was a police sting operation. To get these two kids? Yeah. I think well, Harrison Klebold, that van arrest was not the first time they'd broken into stuff. Um, they had broken into the school's computers and were stealing locker combinations uh, Dylan Klebold uh, had been caught stealing computer equipment and was made to return it to the school. People in the neighborhood, if you read the government documents, suspected Harrison Klebold were uh, breaking into cars and things like that. And I think that Jeffco was out to get these two, and they basically put this little sting operation together, having that van sitting out there. Uh, it just smells like a sting operation okay. to bust these two. I find it a bit hard to believe, I guess you could say, in a way, that because these suspects knew that the cops beat up these kids, that the police would in turn cover up, you know, a mass murder like that. It sounds like, you know, it's not a – they're not exactly even-keeled crimes here. But I no. guess if you're trying to protect careers and stuff like that, you know, to, to take a, a, you know, a devil's advocate look at, the, at my own devil's advocate take, you know, I could see also if, if they're trying to – maintain their careers and stuff maybe they would i mean you know you never you never put it past 
people's uh, desire to protect themselves, I guess you could Right. Say. And I know that's where my theory goes a little bit thin on that one. I realize it's kind of lopsided. But, you know, with the way Jeffco deputies did not want to testify before the governor's review commission, they even said, you know, we don't care what you do, you can subpoena us and we're not going to show up. I thought, you guys have something to hide. And I think the van arrest was it because when the Rocky Mountain News and Denver Post tried to get information on that van arrest, Jeffco absolutely did not want to give out anything more than they'd given. I do think it is more than that. I, I, I do think that the Trenchcoat Mafia kids, I think they they do use that van arrest against Jeffco, but uh, there have been rumors that there was a lot more on Jeffco that uh, some of the parents and such like had a lot you know, more on these. But when it gets into the real heavy stuff, a lot of these people shut down because they know how dangerous it is for them, you know, if they go too far and say too much. Yeah. Um, I do think the van arrest was one thing Jeff Coe had against them, and I think with all the other trouble they had, that it may have been – I think the van arrest may have been more like a tipping point. There was so much that Jeff Coe was hiding already. Right before Columbine, within a few months of Columbine, they had had a series of unsolved murders, uh, one of them involving the wife of a Jeff Coe deputy that had brought the FBI in, and and I think Jeffco was really getting the flames turned up on him by there's a Citizens Review Commission over there that reviews Jeffco's actions and their you know their arrests and questionable things, and mm-hmm. I, so it may not been the van arrest itself. I think what it was was that was the tipping point. I think a lot of people had the goods on the sheriff's department, and the van arrest may have just added to it. And Jeffco at that point said, you know what? Leave it to Harrison Klebold. Let's walk away from this. Okay. It's not like Jeffco hasn't walked away from murders before. I've got tons of news articles where they have refused to investigate uh, murder scenes where somebody was obviously murdered, uh, where they in turn told the coroner to rule it a suicide. I mean, the Denver papers are full of that. Weird. Oh, yeah. Now, the, the other part of this that, you know, like I said, I've always felt this was kind of fishy, and I always kind of thought that maybe there was other kids involved. Mm-hmm. But I always sort of uh, was stuck on the idea of why the other students didn't say anything. And I know that you said, obviously, they said stuff in the witness reports. But it's like, if I was in that school and and there was the shooting, and the next thing you know, like when they all come back to school, people that they think were involved are are just let to go scot free, and they and they get to come back to school and stuff. You know, I wouldn't just just not say anything. So I guess well, you know, did anyone say anything? And, and, you know, raise hell about the fact that this happened, and, and and if not, why not? They tried at the Governor's Review Commission. There were a couple of students uh, who were there that did see other suspects, and they told Don Lee, who was the senator from the Columbine area, the state senator, uh, who actually it was his idea to put the Governor's Review Commission together. These kids said, you know, there are other suspects, and they were told to be quiet by Don Lee himself. And I asked on Lee afterwards, I said, you know, I read the transcript. I said, you should have let the kids talk. And he says, well, we're not here to look for other suspects. And I said, but I think there are. And that's when he admitted to me, he says, Bill, do you know what was going on down in that community before the shooting? And I said, well, I said, I've heard lots of rumors. He says, Bill, the entire damn school knew what was going to happen. The teachers knew, everyone knew, and they turned a blind eye. He says, if these kids go out in public and start running their mouths, they will all be in the electric chair 24 hours later. He says, the governor has already thrown a fit over this. 
that when the when he's looking at these law enforcement documents, these kids are admitting that they knew the shooting was going to happen. And I'll tell you something that should make any American citizen mad. I have news footage where these kids, after the shooting, are standing outside the school cheering this thing on and laughing even after the cops are telling them to shut up this isn't a video game this isn't some uh video you guys are making this is real there's dead people in there and the kids continued laughing i think that's what they used on the kids because one parent told me she goes my daughter will never talk because my daughter's not going to prison and i said why i said she's just a witness and she told me she goes my daughter's one of the ones that knew it was going to happen i said for real and she goes yeah and i go why didn't any of these kids, and your daughter included, call the police? And she goes, because those people in that trench coat mafia were so threatening and so scary, these kids were scared to do anything. A lot of them were. Wow. Just crazy. absolutely petrified. And do you know now you can go to any high school in the Denver metro area, and they all now have a chapter of the trench coat mafia. That group is more uh, powerful now and has more members and is more popular than it ever was. The Denver Police Department actually has an active intelligence unit just watching that group because they're so big now. Weird. Mm-hmm. This is some spooky stuff. Yeah. So it was a mutual blackmail material thing. You know, if you go out and tell people there's other suspects, I'm going to arrest you because you admitted you knew this was going to happen. And anybody can look on any state law books, and it's very clear that if you know a crime is about to happen and you do not call the police or try to get help, you can be charged just as if you committed the crime yourself. That's in Colorado state law. All right. Now, we've kind of gone off on a little side tangent here, but that's fine. That was my doing, and, and I kind of want to sort of rein it in a little bit and bring it back towards the events of that day and sort of revisit the whole aspect of the phone call and how you know the phone call came in saying this was like going on right now, but the phone call came in like two hours before it happened. So... I believe, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I believe that, that you're under the impression that the shooting and the event actually began much earlier than we're, we've been told uh, you know, by the mainstream press. Yes, that, that is my thesis of the whole book. I've lived with that idea for a long time based on a multitude of things. Uh, like I said, most of it, again, coming from the government documents, you know, nothing I heard on the Internet. Uh, the good thing about Columbine, just real quick on this timeline, is that many – of the police officers, many of the people involved in responding to this are the ones themselves putting forth the earlier start time in their reports. Okay. And that's what's scary. So I guess the best place to start is to look at the, the quickie part of the phone call itself where the first call came in at 9.45 a.m. Yeah. And it talked about a shooting and bombing in progress at Denver Area High School. Now, if you remember from Oklahoma City, the phone call to the congressional switchboard was the same thing. And, of course, we know that Oklahoma didn't actually occur till later that morning. So most people thought that this was just an Oklahoma-style thing that, you know, some undercover cop or some snitch called in to warn everyone. And that's originally what I thought for about the first week. It radically changed when I saw uh, Sheriff John Stone on TV and he told the audience, he was being interviewed, this was CBS News, he says, my investigators have destroyed the official timeline leading up to and during the massacre, including the associations and movements of the suspects. Actually admitted that. Okay. 
Now, as I put forth, if you're trying to fudge the time a little bit, say like five minutes here, 10 minutes there, you don't need to destroy the timeline because any cop will tell you, listen, we can only approximate when the guy walked into the convenience store and robbed it. We know exactly, he came yeah. in after 11 and before 11.30, but the clerk thinks 11.15, a witness thinks 11.10. So we just decide on a time right there. That's standard. Mm -hmm. you know, And we can kind of give the cops a, a, you know, a go on that one because we know that's nothing suspicious. Yeah. So we know that if the sheriff did destroy the timeline, if his investigators did it, they must have done it to cover a wide time frame, a half an hour to an hour, two hours before. Now, let me jump in here. What do you mean exactly by destroyed the timeline? Because I'm a little just, just a little confused by what exactly that terminology means. Well, when I went through the reports, I had the same question myself. And what they did is they destroyed all of the receipts from the school store and the cafeteria. Those actually have a time roll on them. Every time somebody buys something, it tells you the time. They admitted that they destroyed all that evidence. That, Why? Why would that, you destroy that stuff? They have never explained it, and I talked to the lead investigator, Kate Batten, and she says, get a court order. I'm not going to tell you anything. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, go on. So they destroyed all of the physical evidence, including the fire alarm, and the water sprinkler system, both at Columbine, if you read the documents, you know they output a time when they turn on. Yeah. They also destroyed the videotape evidence from Columbine. There were video cameras in the hallways, and they had video cameras on all four corners of the building facing so that they could record everything going on outside the building plus in the library. All of those, and I talked to uh, the lady who used to do the security until the Columbine shooting, then she quit. She says all of those tapes were destroyed after they went to the FBI. She goes, they never came back to Jefferson County. Weird. Now, there is some footage that I did see in the Bowling for Columbine film from yeah. the school. How'd that end up getting out? That is the cafeteria footage, and that is what I call the epic feature film of Columbine. That's all it is, is it's nothing more than a fictional film. Those tapes from the cafeteria, along with all the other tapes from Columbine, went to the FBI's lab at Quantico before the public ever saw them. And I've got Rich Price of the FBI on the news saying that we enhanced the footage from the cafeteria. Now, you know, with the Quantico Labs reputation during the Clinton administration, just what did they enhance? So what are you saying about that footage? Because I have it. I'm looking at it right now here on my computer, uh, and we may embed it onto the page so people can see what we're talking about. But what, mm -hmm. So what are you saying, that they just overall doctored the footage? or you know? Yes, I do. And that's my professional opinion because I was trained in film and video post-production. And if you blow that up on an avid workstation – you can see little pixels around Harrison Klebold. As they move in slow motion, you can see those pixels changing color, which they should not if they are in that frame originally recorded as they were walking around the cafeteria. And you talk to any video expert. Uh, in fact, I tell people, go find your own expert, take the footage, and let them look at it. I guarantee you they'll come to the same conclusion. Okay. You can see the pixels changing color as they move. All no right. way should that happen.
Okay, let's return to the timeline now. Hopefully folks aren't raising their <laughs> fist at me for jumping all over the place. But like I said, this is quite a story that we're trying to untangle here on the show. So we're, we're going to get into side tangents uh, from time to time. I apologize to the folks at home listening for that. But hopefully they're enjoying the conversation as much as I am. Let's get back into the timeline that we were talking about and, and the, the pre-phone call part and all that. Okay. Going back into the the timeline with the pre-phone call, at first, I didn't even bother reading the law enforcement reports. I was concerned with what witnesses said. And then I talked to a friend of mine who's an FBI agent, and he, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, what about all these statements here? They're all typed by the FBI and local law enforcement. And he said, well, those must be internal memorandums. And I said, no, they're witness statements. And, uh, you know, and we're going back and forth. And he goes, well, that can't be. He says, for a witness statement to be authentic and to be used in court, it has to be handwritten by the witness or victim and signed and dated by him. He says, are there any statements like that? And I said, yeah, like maybe a dozen is all. And he says, out of 2,000 witnesses? And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, that ain't right. He goes, no, huh? Now there's something wrong there. That was my first indication that they were monkeying with the witness statements to cover the timeline. I, I didn't like it how all the statements were very specific. Yes, the shooting started at 1121. Then the next statement, yeah, 1121. I thought, now, wait a minute. Come on. Witnesses are not that good at recalling times. You know, one guy will say, oh, yeah, it happened 1115 right when lunch started. And the other guy will say, no, 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 no. I think it was more like 1119. You're going to have those discrepancies. Any cop will tell you that. But every statement goes 11.21 a.m., 11.21 a.m., and they're all piped. And I thought, uh-uh, those have been rigged. All right. Now let me jump in here with a devil's advocate skeptical question. If they're going to rig the witness statements to reflect, you know, a created timeline, wouldn't they have uh, redacted all the all the stuff about additional shooters and things like that? In some cases they did, but not in all cases. And I asked about that, too. You know, I asked a guy I've known for years that was an Army Ranger. He did a lot of special ops stuff overseas. And I said, why would you do that? You're still giving yourself away. And he says, you don't get it, do you? He says, if you make everything too perfect, and he has seen this when he was in the Army, he says, what's going to happen is people are going to immediately suspect you've got something to hide. But if you let a few statements here and there slip through about other suspects, he says people are going to forget about that stupid first paragraph of 1121 AM. They're going to look down and say, well, you know, they got to be telling the truth because they, they, they let these kids talk about other suspects down here in the fourth paragraph. So he told me, he says, you never make anything too pick, uh, perfect if you're trying to doctor it. Okay. He says, you got to leave in the other stuff. And, and I've looked up on websites of people who have worked in government service and exposed government corruption like militarycorruption.com. They talk about this too, about how the the uh, police departments within the military, like NCIS and stuff, do this. They rig reports like this all the time. People can go and look at this, by the way. Some of these reports are available on the Internet at those websites. Okay. Very informative. All right. So we've established here that they destroyed the timeline, that this uh, phone call came in. What's your scenario uh, as far as the timeline goes? Well, the timeline gets... Uh, very, very weird, and I get into a scenario that is so hard to believe that, unfortunately, most people that have read the excerpts from my book say, you're going to discredit your whole work by saying this. My opinion is, based on witnesses in the neighborhood, the lack of parents who will say 
what their children were doing the morning before they went to school suggests to me that that shooting either happened real early in the morning, about 8.45 at the beginning of first class, or um, hold on to your heart medication, or the thing happened the day before on the 19th, and it started out as a shooting and then turned into a hostage situation. I know at that point your listeners are going, oh, he picked a real winner this time. Yeah, this is a little bit, oh, I, you know, wow. I know. <laughs> but I don't I even know where to start with this. So wait a minute now. Let me wrap my mind around this. You're you're saying possibly, okay, we're not – I don't want to ascribe that you're you know putting your hand to the Bible on this, but you're saying that it's possible or you think – that there was a shooting there on the 19th, and then they held all those students hostage overnight, and, mm-hmm. and it never got out? I don't I don't think it would get out in a community like that because later on we can explain why I think it didn't get out. Okay. So I know I'm opening myself up here, and that's fine. If people want to say, no, this guy's crazy. However, there are statements from people in law enforcement – and I would say out of all the statements, this is probably makes up about 25% of them. Uh, there's over 100 uh, officer reports in there. So I'd say about 25 of them have this in them, where they talk about responding to Columbine earlier that morning. Some cops have a time of 8.45 a.m., some have uh, 9 o'clock, some of them have 10 o'clock, and those are on April 20th. But there's a number of officers in there that have April 19th at 11 o'clock, noon, 1.45 p.m. Now, I know the argument's going to be, well, you know, 1 and 9 and 2 and 0 are next to each other on the keyboard, so maybe they just fat-fingered in the hurry to get the report done. I would have been willing to admit that, except they wrote the dates in. They didn't type them. All right, I'm trying to wrap my head around this a little bit. Uh, (laughs) This is crazy. So I guess we'll go in this direction. As a sidebar here to what you're saying, okay. what makes you think that it was possible to have started the day before? Just those police reports or other stuff too? Uh, there's other stuff too. You'll notice immediately after my timeline chapter is the autopsies. The one thing that you will notice about the autopsies, and like I said, I will actually put the autopsies up so people can read them. There's no use paying Jeffco 50 bucks for them. But read the autopsies, and the first thing you'll you'll see is the coroners are saying – that rigor mortis was already gone in the bodies. Now, I have an aunt who worked as a nurse and a paramedic, and I asked her about it, and she says, well, the uh, rigor mortis doesn't leave the body till 72 hours after death. And so I looked it up on John Hopkins University website and a lot of other uh, medical schools and, and uh you know, different websites that are official, that are considered official by the government, they all say the same thing, 72 hours. Now, if you remember from the news footage that day and the parents that were talking in the weeks and months afterwards, they were mad because their kids were left in there for more than a day. Now, Jeffco admits that they remove the body, quote, 48 hours after the shooting. They removed those bodies at 6 a.m. on April 22nd. That's in all of the CSI reports. Okay. So now if you go backwards 48 hours from 6 a.m., that puts you backwards past the 8 a.m. start time for school on April 20th. That pushes you back to almost 
uh, midnight of April 19th. All you got to do is do the number. So you can do the math on this one and figure that out. Okay. So they admit how long the bodies were in there. And, and the autopsy doctor tells you, bingo, here it is. Rigor mortis is gone. Well, it doesn't leave till 72 hours after the bo bodies are dead. And if they removed them, you know, at 6 a.m. on April 22nd, and supposedly these kids died right around noon uh, or just a little bit before in the library, um, you can get out your calculator and do some addition and subtraction and figure that out and go, whoa, that dog don't hunt. Yeah. And that's all official. That's all their official reports. Like I said, this is nothing, again, that I'm coming up with from something off the Internet. I'm using their own documents, and I'm crunching the numbers with a calculator. Okay. That's, are those the two tenets? Is there anything else particularly spicy that makes you think that this was going on the day before? Yes. On April 19th, uh, sometime around noon, uh, a resident south of Columbine who I talked to reported that there was a loud explosion from Columbine High School. He said that, you know, he thought maybe the chemistry lab or something blew up, his statements in the documents, but he only saw a couple of police cars show up, and he didn't think anything of it. He thought, well, you know, maybe some stupid kid was messing around with a pipe bomb, and they caught him, and that was the end of it. Yeah. Uh, he said what was strange was he didn't really see much movement or anything from the school after that, so he thought, you know, maybe they locked the school down because they were afraid some kid was playing around with bombs. The thing about that community down there, and this is my third thesis on the timeline problem, okay. that people will bring up the question, Bill, how do you keep so many people quiet? It's not possible. Well, it is if they're all government. So what are you saying, that the whole town's government? Yeah. Every every house I went to, every parent I talked to, oh, I'm former naval intelligence. Oh, I'm former CIA. Oh, I'm former FBI. And the mothers all work for either Lockheed or they work for Boeing or something like that. There, I only ran into like three families that had civilian jobs and had always been in them. Interesting. And I found out after talking to a friend of mine who has worked uh, – well, he worked for the U.S. Marshal's Office. He did witness protection. Um, then he went to the FBI. He's done a number of things. He said, do you remember the CIA and FBI safe houses of the 50s and 60s? And I said, yeah, CIA doing their LSD, all that. They have all these safe houses. Yeah. And the FBI, they were using the safe houses for Pro agents. Mm -hmm. He says, have you ever heard of a thing called a safe community? And I said, you know, it seems to me like a herd of one up Montana. And he goes, exactly. The one up Montana is for the wetness protection program. It's a city unto itself up there. It's like a small town that's all witness protection people. Yeah. Nobody even knows it's there. Not even people living in Montana know it's there. But um, he said there's a thing called safe communities where people retiring from and, and getting out of military intelligence go to live together. And I said, well, why would the government want to go to that effort? And he says, oh, Bill, you don't know what those people know. He says when they leave military intelligence, their lives, he says they could put this country in great danger if somebody was to get a hold of them. He said a lot of these guys know very, very secret and dirty things. Okay. So you're, and I said, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I said, well, what living in a community does that matter? I said, if you're a terrorist group wanting to get a hold of one of these guys, you wait till they go off to work. And he says, look at the community itself. He says, all these guys are trained killers. All of them are. He says, if you try to grab one of these guys, he says, everyone in the neighborhood would be on top of you in five minutes. And I know that sounds crazy, but I have read some CIA documents where they talk about 
uh, encouraging CIA officers and agents uh, to live in the same communities and live near each other. Interesting. Okay. Wow. You've really taken this in a really strange direction, but I have no problem with that. Cause yeah. And like I said, I just – I know some of this stuff is thin, but I'm willing to take the risk, and it's my responsibility, and I take the heat on myself. I don't want anyone else to take the heat for what I say. What I say is, you know, my opinion, I have the research to back up most of it. Some of it is thin, but there's circumstantial evidence there. So, you know, hopefully no one will say, wow, these talk show hosts are, you know, they're into this too. No, most talk show hosts are not into this part of what I talk about. They just say, okay, you can see it because we believe in free speech, but it is on you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a problem. Well, I, I, ma I make it very clear because sometimes, you know, talk show hosts get calls and, emails and people like, you know, oh, you can't really believe that stuff. And it's like, you know what? No, they don't. They just believe in freedom of speech. Exactly. I, wa I want to showcase your stuff. As I said, I've always been of the opinion that this story was kind of fishy, but that's why I'm having you on the show to enlighten me to it. And I'll look further into it myself. And that's what the audience should do as well. You know, don't. Yeah. And I respect you for coming on the show here and admitting that some of this stuff is tenuous at best and admitting, you know, that some of it is kind of flimsy and you're not coming on here saying that you know it for a fact and that, the, you know, all this other stuff. So, I mean, there's too many conspiracy theorists and, and ufologists and all kinds of uh, yeah. researchers out there who, who say they know things that they cannot possibly know. Yeah. So uh, I respect that you, that you come on and said that. Yeah. And I, you know, and I believe that there are more than two suspects. I think I've proved it. I know the photo on the internet is a little bit cloudy, but you know, if people will concentrate on that photo and look at the face and feel free to download it. That's not a copyrighted photo. That's a government photo. Okay. Uh, that's in the public domain. People feel free to download it. Enhance it more than me. I've got Photoshop and that's about the best I can enhance it. But I think people will agree after looking at pictures of Harrison Klebold and looking at that guy, just looking at his eyes and his mustache, you'll say, wait a minute, nah, that ain't Harris or Klebold. Okay, now, again, we've gone off on these on these side tangents, and, and uh, that's perfectly fine with me. I'm really enjoying this conversation. But I want to sort of bring it back into focus here on that day and, uh, you know, sort of wrap up the events of that day as you see them happening based on, you know, what you've researched and this, this new timeline and, uh, you know, complicity maybe by other people and all that stuff. Okay. Well, you know, we've looked at the timeline, and we're looking at the overview as through the shooting. One of the things that I found during the research, is, and you can see this on the news footage too, is that students were in there till 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon before SWAT got to them. Many of those students were absolutely scared to death to come out even after SWAT identified themselves. Several students said that the suspects were dressed like SWAT. Well, that puts a trench coat thing out of it. The timeline problem also goes into the police response. When you look at the SWAT officers' reports and their timeline and you look at their communications with law enforcement at the command post, there is over 45 minutes that they're willing to admit to that they were not in communication with anybody. They couldn't communicate at all. Nobody knows what SWAT was doing in this 45 minutes inside that school that they couldn't communicate. And on top of that, their documents don't reflect it. It simply says, we went into the school, we evacuated rooms, and then the, it ends with, and we went back to the station at such and such time. But they don't tell you, etc. 
except for a few statements, what they encountered in there. The one statement, police statement that I was able to use uh, to compare to the other SWAT statements, he gives a minute-by-minute -minute account, and his account does not line up with anybody else in his group, which suggests, you know, maybe we got a little bit of an inside job going here, and I can prove that one too. Once we get to the end of the day, witnesses hiding in the school well after Harrison Klebold were supposed to have committed suicide at 12.15 in the library are hearing shots from all around the school, including the gymnasium. The one witness who puts it into perspective that there is no way Harrison Klebold committed suicide in the library at 12.15 is Patty Nielsen, who was hiding in the back of the library. She says she never heard shots in the library after Harrison Klebold left till about 3.30. Then she heard two quick rat-a-tat-tats and then silence. Obviously, something was going on in that school. Now, to line it up with the swap movements in school, witnesses past the Harrison Klebold suicide time at 12.15 say that men dressed in black with black face masks were running back and forth in the school, and it appeared as though they were chasing somebody. This was well after 12.15. Mm -hmm. Now, if you remember the official story, the former sheriff said, oh, well, you know, SWAT had to move real slow. It took them hours just to clear one hallway because of all the bombs. Well, if you read the SWAT statements, that's not true. They never encountered any bombs in the hallway or anything that slowed them down. And besides, if they're moving so slow to avoid tripping a tripwire, why do witnesses see these guys dressed in black running by the classroom doors all the time? Running. Okay. This is so, getting so weird, but I'm enjoying it. All right, go on right. now. So, so uh, I keep taking you off these on these side roads, but I can't help it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize up what I think happened that afternoon. Okay, let's do the summary, and then I'll 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 get into my side roads. Okay, at 2:30 p.m., four men come out of the back of Columbine High School dressed in black with M16s. One of them actually has what looks like an MP5, but it's to the side. They get in a green minivan, and they leave the property. They leave the back of Columbine High School by going out the back through Clements Park. BBC records these guys leaving the property. They all are in black BDUs. They have face masks on, but their face is all red like they've been in a building where flash grenades have gone off. Multiple students describe suspects in black BDU-like uniforms with face masks throwing what looked like grenades that, when they blew up, gave, gave off a flash of light. Okay. Okay. How do you know these guys got into the van and everything? That's in the BBC footage? So, yep, that's in the BBC footage. And you can see how tense the police officers are. The cops are looking at these guys like, why are we letting them leave? Rich Price describes these guys, just to show you that cops were not in there immediately like everyone thinks. Rich Price... On the next half hour of news footage of the, because this BBC footage is uncut, the next footage is the actual stuff they show you on TV. Rich Price says now that an FBI team has been cleared to leave Columbine High School, uh, SWAT can go in and start doing their operations. Actually says it on TV. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now, Jeffco never admits that FBI was in there. They never say FBI was in there. They said that kids were hiding in classrooms, there were bombs everywhere, and SWAT had to take their time. They never mention this, Jeffco does, that the FBI was in there before SWAT. Well, if FBI was in there and they were the ones running up and down the hallways, one, 
Why didn't they just take out the suspects, declare the school clear, and then start evacuating students? Tell them SWAT, okay, now you guys can come in. We're clearing the building. Never happens. And you're going to love this. This goes into the special operations chapter of the book, which is farther on. But get up to the timeline here. They say Stone made the mistake of saying on the news that day that they were in the school immediately, that they had officers in there. But if you read all the Jeffco, Lakewood, Littleton, Arvada, all the police statements, read them all. Not one of those cops talks about being in that school before 2.30 in the afternoon. But somebody was in there, somebody in black BDUs with face masks, and now I know who it is. The FBI's HRT team. I found it in the FBI documents that the FBI released where they talk about their team being in there over and above Rich Price's statement to the news. HRT team, if you've been out on the Internet, listen to a lot of guys who are experts in government corruption, HRT is known as the Dirty Tricks Department of the FBI. They are under Division 5. These are the guys that did Waco. These are the guys that uh, were standing outside the Oklahoma City building a block down before the uh, truck bomb went off, just standing there by their cars. They are housed in Colorado at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department, ironically, on the fifth floor, because I've been up there. Okay. And why, they why is that play. ironic? Well, Division 5, Dirty oh, Street, they're okay. on the fifth floor oh, okay. of Jeffco, <laughs> and they're not downtown at the Lakewood Federal Center, uh, or at Lakewood Federal Center or downtown at the FBI office, uh, downtown Denver. They're at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. Why? Okay. Now, Why does the Sheriff's Department have an FBI division in there? That's pretty strange. Now, I was going to suggest that maybe this Price guy you're talking about, he's the BBC announcer or the BBC? No, these FBI. This is a guy that was also involved in Ruby Ridge and uh, uh, okay. Waco, Rick okay. Price. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I was just a little confused by the, the player there. Okay. Yeah. Good. Sorry. I, I probably should have mentioned who he was and given some background on him. But, uh, yeah, Rich Price is of the FBI. He's actually – uh, stationed in Denver, but he was involved in the Ruby Ridge standoff in Waco. He uh, helped with the uh, hostage negotiations. Okay, and he's the one that said that there were FBI guys in there. Yes, he says, now that I've cleared an FBI team to leave Columbine High School, SWAT can go in and start evacuating students. Okay, all right, so where are we at on the timeline here? Where we're at now, we're at 2.30 the afternoon of the 20th, uh, to summarize, SWAT is not in there yet because the FBI is in there at 2.30. Uh, no students other than the ones that ran out when the shooting began have been evacuated, so it creates a big question mark if the FBI was in there. Why didn't they stop the suspects? Why didn't they clear students out? Instead, they leave under heavy guard of the Colorado State Patrol with local cops standing around with their hands on their guns like they want to shoot these guys. And I mean, believe me, the cops had a very angry look on their face, the local cops, as this team came out. Okay. Just to do a little more of a compare and contrast here with the official timeline, but where we're at in the timeline is about 2.30-ish, and in the official version, these two kids that, you know, uh, people say did it, uh, in the official version, they had been dead for like two hours or something like that. But are, yeah. are you saying that they're probably still alive during this time? No. they They were obviously dead which is why I question the official stance on why they couldn't get suspects in there, or not suspects, but rescue workers in there. And two, since Jeffco admits these two suspects were dead at 1215, who was doing all the shooting up till, well, after 2.30, even after the FBI team cleared out of there, there was still shooting going on. 
Okay. And that's admitted. That's in their own official documents. Uh, SWAT officers and officers stationed outside around the school can hear shots up to almost 3.30. I think the last police officer statement is like 3.23 in the afternoon. He can hear shots coming from inside the school. All right. And who do you think were making those shots then? I think that there were two separate teams, this FBI HRT team, and I think there was another team in there. Uh, because later in the afternoon, you can see another group of guys dressed in black, and this is where we really get into crazy stuff. These guys had blue emblems on their jackets, and people can see that news footage and uh, see it on the website. If you look closely at those labels, I can't say this for sure, but they look like NATO armbands, arm patches. Whoa. And as you know, there were allegations that NATO was a Columbine. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I actually got video footage of a police officer with a NATO shield with the letters NATO written on it. Okay, so... And nobody in law enforcement will explain that to me. I've emailed uh, Lakewood, Littleton, everyone I know, and they say, well, we don't know what it is. And I'll say, but it's your shield. It's one of your guys' shield. And they don't know. Weird. Look, Todd, I know you're a big conspiracy theorist, okay? And you believe everything, man. Not you're true. so naive, man. There are no aliens in Roswell, and contact lenses aren't made out of amoebas. They are, they too, are, dude. dude. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Hey, did you see that? What? Chupacabra. He just ran down the aisle, Todd. You better find him. All right, now, so we're, 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 in, the, we're in your timeline, let's say, here. And, and okay. the FBI has left. The SWATs come in. Um, are there, there's still some shooting going on. Um, you know, how does this all wrap up then somehow uh, into the neat version that we, we see in the mainstream? The neat version, the way it wraps up, is the last shot was heard at 3.23 to 3.30 p.m., and it was right after that that SWAT, in fact, the last uh, group of students, which was like 75 of them, uh, came out at three, about 3.45, according to their official timeline. And at that point, they declared the school safe at 345. That was the official clear time for them. Okay. And in your version, how did this whole thing wrap up? Uh, I think that they were still conducting operations even after they got the kids out of there because uh, you can hear numerous statements from uh, kids who evacuated Columbine High School that even at 4.30 in the afternoon, they could hear sporadic shots, small shots, not big guns, but more like pistols or little 9 millimeters. A uh, neighbor, uh, neighbor to the south of the school that I that I talked to, him and his son, his son was a Columbine student who escaped early on, and they were watching the news, and it was about 4.30, and they heard this ding, 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 ding from Columbine. And, you know, the father knew immediately it was a 9 millimeter, And that was admitted. Suzanne McCarroll, Channel 7 News, is standing on the north side of Columbine High School in Clements Park, and she says, we've just had renewed shooting from Columbine. I'm getting confirmations from Jeffco Dispatch that there has been renewed shooting. It is 4.30 p.m. Well, then who is this? Who is uh, – I guess it, it, it's hard to wrap my mind around because it's like who isn't in on this is the, is the yeah. question. And, and, it, and if, if all these people are in on it, um, who's shooting who? Well, I have more news footage that confirms that another person came out of the building. This guy, a four-star general who was armed. He comes up out of a sewer grate in Clements Park, and you can see on the news footage these cops going, 
stop right there, stop right there, and they go running towards him with their guns pulled, and he shows his ID on the front of his jacket, and they all stop. Now, I talked to a couple of cops who were there, and they said that SWAT had actually gone down into the under-basement behind the kitchen uh, behind Columbine, and people don't know this, but there are tunnels under Columbine High School, and this has been admitted to in the official documents, that go out to the uh, dugout in the baseball field, and they go out to a sewer grate in, in uh, Clements Park. And SWAT was afraid that whoever these suspects were may have escaped out through these sewer grates. But this Ford Star General pops up, and that is just a hair after 4.30. He pops up in the, out of the sewer grate. Right there in the news footage. That's just strange. That's yeah. bizarre. I th- like I said, this stuff is a lot for people to get a grasp of, but that's because most people have never seen this news footage. It was shown on local news, but CNN edited a lot. Yeah, yeah. So you- they really held a lot back. The stuff that I got locally, because, you know, I know Adele Arakawa, Channel 9, and she got me a lot of footage that, you know, either was never uploaded to CNN or they just cut it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've sort of wrapped up the timeline part, but I'm still a little iffy, I guess you could say, about who's on the good side here and and if there are rogue factions or whatever, government agents or who knows what, uh, you know, in there perpetrating this thing. Uh, you know, who's working for who, who's shooting who, and uh, how does it wrap up in your timeline where these guys just bail scot-free? Okay. There are three groups of bad guys inside Columbine High School. There is the trench coat mafia who was shooting. There are a couple of local cops who I know are super bad down there, and uh, they basically, you know, told me to my face, you know, you know, stay out of Jefferson County or else, you know. Then there's the FBI HRT team. Now I went through a lot of different people to find out exactly who was shooting at whom, because the way witnesses were describing it. Adam Foss, who was a senior that year, said, quote, I was caught in the crossfire between the vocal choir room and the science hall. And I thought, crossfire? That means you have two opposing parties shooting at each other. Yeah. So I talked to him, and he said, yeah. He said, looking down the hall to the east, he said, there were guys coming from that direction that I saw. He says, but they didn't look like they had guns in their hands. But he says, coming from the other direction, there's guys dressed in trench coats that do have guns. And he says, they're shooting at the guys going in the other direction down the hall. And I said, well, like, were they all like trench coaters? And he says, no, the guys at the other end of the hall that I didn't see guns look like they were just dressed in black clothes. And I said, what happened after that? He said, well, he said, the guys at the other end of the hall ducked behind the hallway for a minute. Then they came back out, and they were armed. They pulled up their weapons and started firing. And he says, at that point, I pushed the other kids back into the vocal choir room, and I went in and slammed the door, and we all uh, got under the tables and stayed there till the shooting stopped. And I thought to myself, you got two different opposing parties shooting at each other. So I started going around the Internet, contacting people I knew, people that ran websites that were security specialists that had military backgrounds. And I said, what do you think about these statements from these kids? And one guy came up with an answer. He said this was actually done years ago. He said it's still highly classified. I can't see where it was done or whatever. But he says they had a a CIA training op where they had a group of terrorists that they knew were real pieces of scumbag dirt that these guys were going to go into a public place in the Middle East. They were going to blow this place up. It was like a restaurant, some like internet cafe or whatever. Yeah. 
And he says they went in there. He says the CIA actually let these guys do their job, commit the crime. Then they went in and took them out so that they could say, see, you know, we were there too late. Look what these bad guys did. But don't worry, we got them. I said, do you think that's what Columbine was? And he says, that's probably part of it. And it seems to me that seems to be the case because look what happened at Columbine. The cops were just as much of victims as the students were. Oh, we just couldn't get in there. John Stone told the public on TV that day, my officers were outgunned. Really? By two punk kids with a couple of shotguns and a Tech-9? Yeah, Against cops with AR-15s? No way. I think this was a very orchestrated government operation where they wanted to insert these bad guys, let them do their thing, and then go in, take out the bad guys, and then say, oh, we were just outgunned, and, and we just tried to save all those people and couldn't do it. So you know what? You know, maybe the American public should consider giving up their guns now because we're too outgunned by these people. And you could just see the anti-gun drool dripping from the cops' mouths within weeks after the shootings. They were all crying like a bunch of babies here in Denver, acting like Harrison Klebold were like, you know, the Russian army coming through Columbine and they couldn't do anything. It made people sick. All right. So you're saying that, that, that the big picture reasoning behind this might have been gun control? Yes. Interesting. Yep. Several of the cops involved in the investigation were members of SAFE as well as the Million Mom March. They, the one guy... His wife actually was the creator of the Million Mom March, and they had been trying to get a lot of these guns like these Tech 9s and these uh, high point nine millimeters off the market, and they, the ATF and Congress and the rest of them, they wouldn't outlaw them because they said they're not fully automatics. There's no reason to outlaw them. And we had uh, a gun vote coming up on a concealed weapons permit the day after the Columbine shooting where we would have had a Vermont-style carry where anybody could get a permit in one county and carry in the rest of the state. Ah, interesting. That, that gun law, that concealed law, was shelved indefinitely, and then in 2003 they came out with a modified version that said, if you get one in Denver County, you can only carry in Denver County. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, okay, let me let me do another like sort of skeptical question here, and that's just okay. that if this event lasted so long and there was all these differing parties and everything else, how come there was only ten victims? It sounds like this thing would have been, you know, um, much bigger. I guess you could say, just based oh, yeah. on the time and and the number of parties involved. I'm sure there were a large number of injured people, but uh, maybe maybe I'm underestimating the amount of carnage that was involved there. No, uh, the, you're not underestimating. Uh, most people who don't have access to the documents don't realize that even though Jeffco only announces that there's 25 injured, if you read the statements, there are over 125 injured. Oh, wow. Most of them were never classified as uh, injured because uh, according to uh, the Denver area, I think it's a disaster, the uh, Denver area, it's like their own little FEMA said that unless the bullet penetrated the skin, they didn't consider it an injury. There were many students who were shot at, but the bullet bounced off lockers and concrete walls and only grazed the skin. Lots of students had injuries like that. Other students uh, were uh, pushed down by the suspects, uh, were pushed down the stairs, uh, pushed out of the way like 
Harrison Klebold or whoever else was involved didn't really want them and they were seriously injured, you do have a couple of gunshot victims that are not listed as well as gunshot victims. Um, you have, I uh, can't remember her first name, but her last name is Asinius. And uh, she took a bullet to the calf, and she is not listed in the official uh, 25 injured. Hmm. There is another girl that got shot in the head, uh, a little uh, Chinese girl. The, uh, the bullet, it was fired from so far away that it didn't penetrate the skull. It actually stuck in the skin, but it knocked her unconscious, and you can see the paramedics working on her head. She is not listed officially as injured. They just have a statement from her after she got out of the hospital. Weird. Talk about political tricksters there. <laughs> but the number of dead is, is uh, not disputed? Oh, heavily disputed, even even by uh, kids at the school. Oh, yeah. All right. Extrapolate on that a little bit. Okay. The first indication that I have that there might be more dead was a student by the name of Jonathan Vandermark, who, by the way, is now dead himself. Uh, Jonathan Vandermark said that as he was leaving the school through the science hallway, he said, and I quote, the hallway is littered with bodies. Now, I looked at the map he drew for the investigator, and the hallway he is in is the south hallway on the second floor in the science area. According to Jefferson County, nobody died there. Just in the library, two students outside, as well as Dave Sanders in the science classroom. But nobody died in the science hallway. But yet you have Jonathan Vandermark saying that, you know, there were bodies in the hallway. And that's not all. You have a SWAT officer calling outside, telling the Jefferson County command post, which had been set up uh, right down the street from the school, quote, we have mass casualties in here. We need all available emergency aid, ambulances, and even flight for life. In his report, he states, quote, there are over 25 dead in the school. This was a massacre. We were going nuts trying to figure out how we were going to get the wounded and dead out of the school. That's a SWAT officer statement, his official statement. Wow. Handwritten statement to his superiors. I don't even know where to go from here. If they say only 10 died, but, you know, we're talking about way more casualties possibly, you know, how do you even cover that sort of thing up? I mean, there are kids' parents involved in stuff. I mean, you know how parents are. They're, yep. they're crazy. I wouldn't want to get mixed up with, with uh, messing up with somebody's kid because oh, no. parents no, are the worst. Yeah, that's when parents really go nuts. Absolutely. So, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, if, if some – if someone's kid got killed at Columbine and, and, it, and, it, and it got covered up, yeah, I'm sure that there would be problems. So how and, – and, and that, I guess, goes to the larger question, and you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier about Columbine being a, a, a unique town, for lack of a better term. But mm -hmm. how does this whole thing get covered up then if what you're saying is, is on the level and true? The way that I've seen it, having dealt with uh, members of the military and my own family as well as people I've known over the years – is that the old saying, loose lips sink ships, goes long after you've retired or quit the military. Um, if you'll notice, if you've ever been around military men, even and women too, by the way, not being prejudiced here, there is a lot of things they will not talk about even outside the military because a lot of these people have 
that have been in the military, they go into defense contracting, they're in high finance, they're in all this other stuff. They're into a lot of weird stuff after they get out, unless they just go get an ordinary job driving pizza or, you know, running a lawn mowing business or whatever. Yeah. Uh, most of them go into areas that are very close to what they did while they were in the military. And you will find in the Columbine area that many of these parents – uh, stick very close to the defense contractors, Lockheed Martin. The Columbine area, most of those people are employed by Lockheed Martin. Some of them are employed by Boeing. Also, Comcast, and I know people might laugh at this. People say, well, you know, if they're in Comcast, big deal. It's cable TV. What people don't know is Comcast has a division down in the Littleton area that houses NSA offices. Comcast isn't just for you to watch TV. They do a lot of classified communication stuff. Weird. Yes. So these people know how to keep secrets, and they keep secrets because it's been their whole life. Now, I know people are going to say, yeah, but it's their children. You would go postal, but you don't know how the military works. There are a lot of people out there that have had things happen to their children because of what they do for a living in the military, and they suck it up and keep it quiet. And if you have a multi-pronged conspiracy at Columbine where you have the gun issue coming down, and I get into other aspects of Columbine that are so way out that, like I said, people are going to go, okay, I was willing to look. But now, to keep this quiet, not everyone did keep quiet about other people being dead. Tony Martinez, who worked at Lockheed Martin, had two twin daughters at Columbine. You can read this in his statement. His girls never came home from school that night. Never came home. Yeah. He filed a report with Jeffco saying, I've talked to them. They saw my girls going down the hallway towards the suspects. They never saw them get shot. No one knows what happened. Jeffco said, oh, wait till tomorrow morning. Most kids are scared, ran off into the neighborhood and are staying with friends or whatever. He says, not my girls. I live a block from the school. They would run straight home. Yeah. And Jeffco's like, well, well, you know, okay, whatever. They had uh, situations like this. A couple of weeks later, he files another report. At this time, he's getting pretty mad. Now, it kind of goes under the cover of darkness. It gets real quiet. I talk to him, and he says, well, he says, you know, maybe my girls just ran away from home because of what happened at Columbine. It was too much for him to deal with and all that. And I'm like, yeah, but I read your statement, and you said you believe it's possible they could have been killed in the school. And he says, yeah, but I think Jeff goes right. Maybe they just ran away. And I thought – then why aren't you hiring a private investigator? Why aren't you interviewing their friends, having the cops talk to their friends to find out, you know, did they link up with somebody and, and, and skip town because of, of the emotional trauma? Yeah. These, you got, here's what I call these families. I call them the Stepford families. Unless you've been to the Columbine area and talked to these people, you will never know how bizarre they act. There were parents who were actually happy after this shooting. They were thrilled to death almost that this thing happened. They really creeped me out. They really did. Why were they thrilled? Well, here's what one parent said to Channel 9 News. I got the news footage and the Rocky Mountain News article. Her son was killed in the library. Her name is Phyllis Velasquez. Her son Kyle was killed in the library. Remember when they did all that crap of rebuilding the school and they took the library out, destroyed it? Mm -hmm. And then from then on in the cafeteria, you could look up and see what used to be the, the roof of the library was now the roof of the cafeteria. Well, they painted a grove of trees on there. And, we, of course, we all know the Wiccans get associated with groves of trees. 
Well, Phyllis Velasquez was in the library or in the cafeteria for this dedication, and she looks up, and everybody quotes her on this. She says, on April 20th, we set our children's souls free. That even creeped out the Rocky Mountain News reporter that was there. Wow. While we're on the memorial part uh, here on the thing under strange days, uh, you say you uh, examine the high strangeness surrounding the memorial and, and what this memorial may have really been intended to do. So I guess mm -hmm. tell me about that because I'm, oh, I'm sure. intrigued by sure. wow, that interesting little tidbit. Well, I went to the memorial, as a lot of other people here in Colorado did. I, you know, even though I suspected Columbine was a conspiracy and, and really hinky stuff, I still wanted to be decent and go pay my respects. I mean, you know, it's my state. It's our reputation on the line here. So I thought, I'll go down and pay my respects to the memorial. I have never seen such – I mean, it was like an episode of The X-Files. There were military guys all around – that memorial with M16s walking through the crowds of parents and students from Columbine, as well as people from around the community and around Colorado, they brought in every big movie star and rock star you could think of. They brought in Aerosmith. They brought in Amy Grant, the Christian singer. They brought in Michael W. Smith. And they brought in all of the Joint Chiefs of staff, as well as high-ranking generals and admirals from every branch of the military. I shook hands with some of these guys. They have never done that for a school shooting, never showing that. William, Colin Powell was here. They had some of the highest-ranking people in the world here. They had foreign dignitaries here. They had some guy representing the British government here. Okay, what, so what, what do you think that all means, though? I will tell you what I think Columbine is, in a nutshell and it will throw everyone off their chair when they hear it. That was a ritual sacrifice by extremely wealthy and evil individuals, both within and outside our government. I, I convinced of it. I, I put everything I have on it. Wow. You don't do things the way they do, and there's nothing hinky about it. They flew the missing man formation for the Columbine kids that were killed. What, what do you mean there? What's that? Uh, have you ever seen the uh, when a pilot, when an American pilot uh, dies, they miss uh, fly the missing man formation for him? Oh, okay. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, they did that over the Columbine area, flew the missing man formation, and that's only the beginning of the hinkiness. You had people in there talking about how this was a significant event that that we were going to be motivated for change by this event, and I thought, well, you know, gun control. But then they released all these doves up into the air, and all these parents are standing there looking up, and one woman, and, and I know she wasn't one of the parents who lost a child, but she looks up and she goes, oh, thank God for April 20th. And people who were not from the Columbine area, who it's obvious they weren't there, were looking at her like, thank God? What kind of nut are you? And I heard it. I was about 20 feet away, and I'm like, what kind of sick, twisted woman is this? Yeah, this is this is getting bizarre. So you, it's sick. I mean, these people are demented down here. Yeah, I mean, uh, and and I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, and I let you believe this and and all that. And I'm going to take a devil's advocate point of view, I guess you could say, and okay. just say, you know, maybe you're just trying to ascribe, you know, rational thought and motivations to irrational actions. You know, like I had a friend. I don't know if you've heard about the wrestler there who killed his wife and his kid and then killed himself uh, a couple years ago. 
you know, he, he couldn't believe it and kept saying, you know, there had to be something else to this. And, and uh, you know, my argument to him was that you're just trying to put rational thought into an irrational act. What about that sort of argument, I guess you could say, that, yep. that maybe, you know, you're connecting dots that, that uh, you know, don't necessarily connect and, and you yeah. know, you're just trying to put a, a story to this event to try and make some sense of why it happened when really, you know, we don't we would never really will know why these these two kids in the official story, you know, flipped out. Yeah. If it was just one or two incidents of people acting stupid, I I, I wouldn't have even gone down that road with that chapter. I would have just dealt with other suspects or whatever and let it go at that. But having been at the memorial myself and having witnessed all these high-ranking military members being there, I've checked all the other school shootings. I've even checked Oklahoma City. Even when they did the memorial for the people dead there, they didn't bring in all these people. And just all of these high-ranking members of our military, all of this stuff, all of these people, and with the background of this of this community and all their people, when you put it all that together, it, it's just too much to say, oh, I'm reading too much into it. Okay. And there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot more to the parents than that. All right. Now, before we get into some of the other stuff here, what about these paranormal events before, during, and after the massacre? Because we're usually a paranormal show, so I do find that kind of interesting that there may be some kind of paranormal connection going on here. Right. Um, the one thing coming from my background, I'll tell you a little bit more about my background, is more Judeo-Christian than most people. Uh, most people either come from, well, I believe in God, but I'm more towards agnostic or whatever. Um, having grown up in a Christian school and having seen a lot of paranormal events myself, mostly related to what Christians and Jews would call demonic behavior, I kind of uh, subscribe that to this <clears throat> based on the witnesses who even before the Columbine shooting were having people like ghost hunters would call it manifestations, ghost hauntings in their homes. In the Columbine area, several families described even before the shooting happened, it was just within weeks before it, that they could hear the sound of Indian drums coming from Clements Park. And I thought, well, some kids are, you know, out there with their electronic machines or whatever. Um, I actually sit out there one night. I sit there all night in Clements Park. I had a cop sitting with me because it was right after the shooting, and they didn't want anybody getting too close. Yeah. And I asked the cop, I said, have you ever heard people describe these Indian drums? And he says, oh, yeah, I take reports all the time. He says, I get here, and there's never anything. And so I sat there, and I sat there, and pretty soon you could hear this old drumming noise. And boy, let me tell you something. This cop was on his feet in minutes, and he says, well, where the hell is that coming from? And you could hear it. It was a typical, like what you see on the Indian reservations, their drums. And it kept getting louder and louder and louder. And we were looking around Clements Park. We walked the whole park. He had his flashlight. We looked. No kids playing with us. No funkiness. But it sounded like it was all around us. That is only part of what I've seen, and that was the only incident that I personally witnessed of what I could hear. Everything else that I encountered, especially when I went on a tour of Columbine High School, was I felt eyes on me all the time. And 
several of the police officers that I talked to who had been inside the school during the SWAT operation said the same thing. They said they kept getting real paranoid and they had the officer in the rear of the team looking back the other direction as standard procedure, making sure the suspects didn't come up behind them. But they all said the same thing. They felt like somebody was watching them, but not students from the classrooms or anything like that, but that somebody was right there in the hallway with them, but they couldn't see them. And it really bugged a couple of these guys out really bad. There's a couple guys that ended up, you know, on the couch after that. Weird. And the when I went on a tour of the school with the media, I could feel it. And a couple of news people mentioned, do you feel that? That is really weird. And they felt really bugged out. They didn't like being in the school. It just felt eerie to them. It just and and one woman said that she felt like somebody was watching them. And, you know, people say, Well, what do you mean? There's people all around and she goes, No, but from down that hallway and that's down the hallway where the library used to be. And she could feel it. And a lot of other people could feel it, too. Other families have talked about that they have seen lights on at Columbine High School when the janitors say that there were no lights left on. Uh, there was one girl that told me that she stayed after school to work on a school project. This was the next school year after the Columbine shooting. And that she heard voices in the adjoining classroom, and she went, looked in the window, because she knew nobody else was supposed to be there. And there was nobody in the room, and when she went outside, she pulled on that door handle from that classroom, and it was locked. And she said she kind of got spooked, and after that, she always had friends stay with her when she worked on projects. Yeah, geez, I wouldn't hang around there by myself anyway. That sounds scary. So what do you yeah. think? Is it haunted, or are we talking, is this thing built on an ancient burial ground of some kind? Yep. Or your second statement hit it right on the nail on the head. And that will be in the Strange Days chapter towards the end. I visited the Denver Historical Society because I wanted to know the history of that property to see if anything happened there before the shooting. Because I knew that these paranormal events were going on before the shooting. So I thought, has something happened here? Sure enough, I found out that it was Indian it was a sacrificial ground, not a burial ground, but it was not North American Indians. The Native American culture of North America says that there were, quote, strangers living in that area who were extremely violent. And that is how Red Rocks got its name, by the way, I found out, because of the wars with this strange group of Indians. They only described them as, as strange brown skin, very dark brown skin people that were very violent. They did not like uh, the Plains Indians coming near them, but when they did and they had wars, so many people were killed that it turned the rocks red, and that's where Red Rocks Amphitheater gets its name from. And the rocks are red up near uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater. The rocks are all red. But everything around the amphitheater is your typical gray rock, just right in that area. Red Rocks Amphitheater is just northwest of there by eight, nine miles. Huh. Weird. This thing is so weird, man. I'm telling you, I thought there was something fishy to this, and I still do, but I'm not sure even where to... <laughs> to put my push pin here for belief uh, now Yeah. after hearing all this stuff you're laying on me. We're going to kind of just throw a bunch of different things here at the okay. wall and hit on a bunch of different topics. Now, what about these mysterious deaths and disappearances? I've heard about the famous one in front of a Subway sandwich shop or something like that, but I'm sure there's right. oh, more there's mysterious there's stuff. There's many others. That. Yeah, let's talk um, about those. If you remember, I mentioned earlier Jonathan Vandermark. This is a guy that said there were bodies in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Vandermark was flying an airplane over Denver. He had gotten his pilot's license, and this was uh, about two years after Columbine. He was flying in his prescribed flight 
path in elevation. Suddenly, another airplane, a small plane uh, flown by an older gentleman, comes into his flight path. And, F and the FAA uh, Denver International Airport notifies him, somebody just flew into your flight path, get out of the way. It was too late. Boom, head-on collision. Oh, God. Both planes dropped to the ground west of Federal. Now, for the creepy part, according to witnesses, and I went over to the neighborhood and talked to people that saw this, they said, quote, that the boy and his friend in the plane were still alive and screaming in the wreckage, and police would not let the Denver Fire Department near the plane. Weird. And I talked to one of the guys in Denver Fire Department. He was really pissed at Denver PD. He says they were afraid of explosion. And like he told the cops, he says, what do you think we're here for? Yeah. You know, uh, they were going to do the standard, foam down the plane and do everything. And, and that was reported by the Rocky Mountain News, by the way. The Rocky Mountain News did a big expose of why Denver Fire Department was not allowed to save these two boys in this airplane. And what happened to the guy in the other plane? He died? He was he was dead, yeah. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Now, well, all right. So that guy's gone now. We, we All right. Now, and he saw something that they claim didn't happen inside the school. He saw bodies where they shouldn't have been. Yeah. Now you've got uh, this case uh, with the teacher, Teresa Miller. Uh, Teresa Miller uh, taught a science class next to uh, Frank Peterson, and then on the other side was Dave Sanders' class that he would teach before that hour, which was the uh, keyboarding class. Mm -hmm. Teresa Miller saw Dave Sanders get shot. She said in her statement to the police, it was not Harris or Klebold that shot Dave Sanders. It was this other student whose name is blacked out. And she, she was interviewed five times, and she kept to her story. She goes, it was this other student that shot uh, Dave Sanders. Well, she's in perfect health. She's a great woman, great family, married, you know, very steady. She don't smoke. She don't drink. Suddenly dies from cancer about six months after she uh, made her last statement to police. Huh. Cancer came out of nowhere, according to the Rocky Mountain News and her family. Weird. <laughs> well, yeah. cancer is a mysterious disease, so I won't, you know. Yeah, I'm not but I've to. actually got the documents from the CIA from back in the 60s when they admitted they could give people cancer. Yeah. They were trying to do it to Castro. <laughs> All right, so we've got we've lost her now. How how long is the body count of people who, who have died mysteriously post-Columbine? Quite a number. Uh, some of them we don't know that there's anything suspicious, but there's another student, Corey Hager, who his statement is missing from the Jefferson County Document Collection. And Jeff Coe won't give me an answer as to why his statement's not in there, but he died in a one-car car accident in Montana. He was driving his uh, grandfather's pickup um, up there. He is, uh, that, it was this, the summer of the, after the Columbine shooting, and he was working for his grandfather, went off the road and hit a telephone pole, and he's dead. Weird. Yeah. You also have the mother of uh, injured student Anne-Marie Hawkalter, her mother uh, Carla Hawk. Halter. Now, this one is pretty clear what happened to her, but she walks into a gun shop in Denver, asks to look at a 38. The guy gives her a 38, and, he's, and he goes to answer the phone, hears this bang, and turns around, and she had shot herself. She had loaded the 38 and shot herself. Now, people say, well, that's obvious that was just a suicide. 
But the reason I put it in mysterious deaths and disappearances was because Jeffco tried to make her out to, to look like a loony, like she had had years of psychiatric trouble, and her daughter from her wheelchair was on TV crying, saying, there was nothing wrong with my mother. She was handling my injury just fine, handling Columbine. She's never had mental problems. They're lying about my mother. I mean, the, the father actually filed a suit against Rocky Mountain News in uh, Jefferson County, and they were forced to make a retraction that she had had years of mental trouble. Weird. But people ask me why I include it in the chapter, and it's very simply this. Anne Marie told her mother in the hospital, quote, a man dressed in black with a black face mask shot me. It was not Harrison Klebold. Now, you can only imagine a mother hearing that story from her daughter, and everyone in the Columbine area has heard the stories from the other kids about these men dressed in black. It probably pushed her too far. Yeah. But that's the reason I include her in there is because Jeffco's reasoning of why she killed herself was total BS, and they were they were called to the carpet on it. All right. Now, one of the big questions that often get asked about conspiracy theorists, and um, especially relevant, I guess you could say, to your case here and, and the Columbine story, is you know if there's been these mysterious deaths. And it seems like you're the only one really making any noise about the Columbine conspiracy. Why haven't they just taken you out? Why haven't they just wiped you out and, and you know, cut the head of the snake right off? Well, I, I think the reason why uh, is because I've been public since day one. I haven't been some guy hiding in a corner of the Internet. I mean, I've been very public. I mean, I've been into the police departments. They have a record of me being in Jeffco in Denver talking to them. Uh, about Columbine, I've been to the protest marches where we protested uh, both the governor uh, and the sheriff's department over the review commission that we thought was a whitewash. I've been very public uh, about it. I think if I was to disappear, people would say, wait a minute, he's been in all these marches and protests. He's been complaining. He's been saying publicly in front of the governor, Bill Owens, that this is a, a conspiracy and a cover-up. Now he's dead. I, I think it's better just to let me run my mouth. Because I think they know, listen, you know, it's not like he's got the whole shooting on video where it shows, you know, the government in there killing everybody. Yeah. And I'm sure that's the way they look at it. Like, you know, let him talk, you know. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because they can explain away some of the consistencies in the official story, but the others they just ignore. All right. Now, what about, you know, some of the kids that made it out of there and and the parents and, and even the people in the community, what's been their reaction to your stuff? Have you heard from people that are like, yeah, dude, you're on the right track or, you know, warnings to not investigate this stuff or any, any sort of reaction, I guess you could say, from the players involved in the Columbine uh, story? It's pretty varied. Uh, there are some parents that say, yeah, you're right on. Um, like a girl by the name of uh, Kara Sander and her mom, Kim Sander, they, you know, I've talked to them numerous times. They said, yeah, you, you know, you're right on. Kim Sanders believes that the police are uh, monitoring students to this day, tapping their phones, following them around. I get reactions like that. Other parents are more indifferent. They're like, well, you know, we wouldn't do this research if you were you. We're trying to put this behind us, but, you know, it's free country. Do what you want. And then I get the others that, um, you know, they're like, oh, how dare you do this, you know, and you know, and, and, you know, you're just hurting people by doing this. And, and I'm like, wait a minute, you guys were all over the news for weeks after that wanting public attention. How could I be hurting anybody's feelings, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you get the other people that just won't see anything at all. You, you, I ask them, I'll say, do you mind if I do this? And they just walk away. They don't, they, they just don't see anything at all. 
Weird. Now, what oh, about it's buried? Yeah. What about the government and all, all those folks? You know, I'm sure you've, you've uh, been in contact with the yeah, the police you know, down there and everything else. At Jeffco, I think Jeffco's got enough to lose that they just kind of grudgingly go along with it. Um, Steve Davis, John Stone, uh, a couple of the others, they're just like, well, you know, go ahead and do your research, but we made our conclusions and we're sticking by them. Uh, they don't get threatening. They don't threaten me in any way, and uh, I've never been threatened by any of them. Others in government, like when I was downtown at the FBI building trying to pull documents, they were a little bit more nastier about it, but, you know, no direct threats, just like, you know, well, why do you want to know, and, you know, and, you know, who are you, and, and you know, and the typical FBI response. Others are in law enforcement are very much for it. Uh, they got pensions to protect, so they don't want to come out, but, you know, I, I've been told by a couple of cops, yeah, go for it, you know. Uh, some of them that were there, they knew it's bad, uh, but they've also said that they're, you know, they're not going to support anything. Uh, as far as research goes, but, you know, go for it. So. Yeah. Now, are we ever going to be able to get to the bottom of this, do you think, or, or is it just, you know, going to turn oh, into like a JFK assassination type? Oh, thing? no. No, I've already – I've really already gotten to the bottom of it for the most part. Um, I have actually talked to the guy who trained Harrison Klebold. I know exactly what his part was in all this. Believe me. This is the this is the guy whose uh, photo he's in the library. This guy was writing to the newspapers, saying Harrison Klebold were idiots; they couldn't shoot straight. John Stone and the, and the sheriff's department—they're all great guys, and the parents suck for bringing a lawsuit. They're all a bunch of idiots. And I'm like, how stupid can that be? At the time of the Columbine shooting, he was a firefighter making thirty thousand dollars a year. Now he lives in Evergreen in a $500,000 house. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, now, if the parents sued Columbine police and everything, that sort of flies against the idea that, that they were going to keep quiet about certain aspects of the story. So how do you reconcile those two things? When I talked to the parents, I found out exactly why they were doing the lawsuits. Now, this will make anybody mad, but the parents have admitted this publicly. I asked several parents who are involved in the lawsuits. I said, are you going to go after Jeff Coe for not revealing these other suspects? Oh, absolutely not. We're not even going to go there. It, it, it was Lubox and video games that caused Columbine. And I'm like, well, why are you suing the sheriff's department for that? Well, because they knew Harris was playing violent video games and he was on these drugs. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of people that play video games and are on drugs. And the cops don't go after everybody unless they've committed a crime. And these parents knew. They knew there were other suspects. One parent told me, she's the one that told me about this adult that trained Harrison Klebold. And I said, who else knows about this guy? And she goes, the whole community knows about him. He used to do fire safety classes in the school. Every kid there knows who he is. I said, how come nobody's talking? She goes, you don't know this place. She goes, they don't talk down here. And I said, are you going to bring that up in your lawsuit? And she goes, no. No, absolutely not. She goes, I'm not going to bring it up. She goes, we're just going to go after Solvoy Pharmaceuticals, and we're going after the uh, makers of, of the video game Doom, and then we're going to get the sheriff's department for not reacting fast enough. And I said, but yeah, but what if they turn around and suddenly arrest another suspect? You guys are all going to look stupid. Oh, they'll never do that. We know that. The Columbine parents became instrumental in the conspiracy themselves because they elected not to go after these other suspects, even though they admitted to me that they knew. But they weren't going to go after that. They just wanted to go after Jeff Coe's response. Wow. 
This is some wild stuff here, Bill. Yeah. This is some wild stuff. Uh, now, what about, there's a lot of theories that these kids were, like, mind-controlled and stuff. Are you in that camp, too? That, that, that Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can't. You can't have people do what the all these kids down did down there, not just Harrison Klebold, but the other kids that were suspects as well as a lot of victims. Uh, you have kids who are standing there, and as the shooting's going on around them, and I got their statements and the police SWAT officer statements who were watching these kids trying to wave them out of the school, you got one girl walking between Harris and a group of kids he's shooting at, and she looks at Harris smiles and waves at him, and then just continues on walking down the hall. You didn't tell me that's not mind control? There's nobody in the world that can tell me that's normal behavior, even for somebody in shock. And I've talked to a lot of cops, and they've seen a lot of weird behavior from victims that are in shock, and they have never seen anything like Columbine. They have never seen kids stand there like they're in a trance. And by the way, I do have some circumstantial evidence that they were using some type of of electromagnetic spectrum wave to create mind control. Sunday night on April 18th, people started calling in to Comcast as well as DirecTV saying that there was a loud hum coming through their TVs and wanted to know, you know, like the DirecTV people thought their dish was going out. Comcast thought, you know, of course, stupid Comcast, they're screwing up again, <laughs> you know, with their lousy service. And Comcast and DirecTV, I know people at Comcast, and they said, Bill, we went out there. We couldn't find anything. But, yeah, we were hearing it in studio, too, because their studios are right down there by Columbine. Now, you remember the guy that did the book uh, Baggage on the harp transmitter? Yeah. On his website, he got a radiograph from the Air Force that shows a high concentration of an electromagnetic field over Columbine High School before, during, and up to three days after the shooting that he says is instrumental of harp from a satellite. That's on his website. Weird. Because people asked him about it, and he went to the Air Force and pulled it. You have people that can't remember anything at Columbine. You have cops who went out basically on psych disabilities who tried to write their reports, and all they could write was a little thing saying, I responded to Columbine at uh, 11.30 a.m., and, well, I can't remember what I did after that, but I know that we were cleared to leave the scene at 3 o'clock. What? You can't remember? Cops have the best memories in the world. Cops don't forget crime scenes, but it's right there in the statements for everyone to read. If people don't believe this, read the cops' statements. It's not just victims who can't remember. It's cops wow. who this can't is... remember. You've got victims saying that they can't remember the order or the sequence of events at Columbine. One investigator asked the girl, well, can you tell me from the time you went to lunch till the time the shooting happened, a sequence of events? She goes, all I know is somebody said there was a shooting and I left the school, but she says, I can't remember in what order things happened. Wow. And the statements are littered with that stuff. Interesting. This is some surprising stuff. How come you're the only one making all this noise about things, Bill? I, I mean, I think the problem with Columbine is simply this. One, the documents are too expensive to get. Most people don't even have access to them. And the reason why, as soon as some kid puts them up on his website, Jeffco starts whining, well, we have to sell those to make money. You know, and, and you put them up for free, so Jeffco makes them take them down. Well, they only did that to me once, and I told Jeffco, I said, you know what? 
government documents are public. They have no copyright on them. Yeah. You cannot tell people they cannot distribute government documents. And if you want to come over and raise hell with me, let's go for it. I'll dance with the cops any day of the week. Wow. And they laid off because I've been handing out the documents to anybody who wants them. And people that see the documents for the first time email me and go, oh, my God. You know, they freak out because 99% of the people on this planet have never read what's in the documents. They don't bother. They look at the news footage and they see Harrison Klebold, Trenchcoat Mafia, oh, these guys were drug addicts, video game players, and oh, they probably closed the homosexuals too. Oh, well, that explains it all. We're done. We don't need to see any more. But then you have the so-called conspiracy community. And most people in the conspiracy community, maybe they go overboard, maybe they theorize too much, but for the most part, they're pretty innocent people. They just want to know what happened. But you've got to be careful about some people in this conspiracy community or what I call the patriot community. I ran into two people, don't need to name names, everybody knows them, and everybody will know who I'm talking about. They came into Denver in 2000, and they said, Bill, there's no other suspects, there's nothing to Columbine, there's nothing to anything, it was just Luvox and video games. And I said, did you read the documents? Did you go down there and talk to people? Oh, we don't need to, we know what it is already. The majority of people that follow conspiracies, that follow this so-called patriot community, look to these two as, as movie stars of the patriot community. So they hijacked the whole thing from day one. All right. Now, one of the things that you did want to talk about uh, that we were, we were discussing before we started the interview was just the importance of these autopsies to, to the whole story. So before we head towards the close here of the interview, tell us a little bit about the autopsies and why you think they're important um, you know, to your research. Uh, like I said, to, to shore that up, to recap real quickly, um, the rigor mortis had already been gone by the time the uh, autopsy doctors got to it, which is 72 hours. Uh, that kind of puts us outside of our window of about noon when they supposedly died. So we got that. So now we're going to go into the bullet trajectories. According to the autopsy doctor who they did the trajectories with CSI, you know, where they put the little pipes in the bullet wound to see the trajectories. The, the big one is the outside victim, Daniel Rohrbaugh. According to the autopsy doctor in CSI, he had entry wounds that went from lower to upper. Now, most people don't understand why that's important, but here's why it's important. According to Jeffco, in their official story, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were above Rohrbaugh by a good 15 feet higher and a good 30 feet away. So how did the bullets go in at a, from lower to upper? Jeffco admits that the bullets did not ricochet off the ground. Witnesses who were interviewed about Rohrbaugh, uh, about what they saw, said that they saw the bullets hit him, saw the blood come out, and that there was no ricochet. So the, what I concluded there, and this was from a few witness statements, is that Rohrbaugh was shot from somebody in the parking lot in a crouched position by the cars. Now, not everybody saw this person, but there are witnesses who said they saw somebody crouched by a Jeep, but they couldn't tell if he had a gun or not, but they suddenly heard this pow-pow, and they, and they see smoke coming from where this uh, kid is crouched, and then they see Rohrbaugh go down. Based on the position of Rohrbaugh's body, there is no way he was shot from up above 
because where he's laying, he is facing towards the Columbine parking lot, but Jeff Cohen, their official report, has him facing towards Harrison Klebold. There's no way that they shot him from the overview where they were at. So that means, obviously, that this person out in this parking lot could have been shooting a gun, and if that's the case, Jeff Coe doesn't put Harrison Klebold in a crouched position in the parking lot, which suggests another suspect. So that is in the reports, too. Now, go into the library victims in the library, and you have two concerns of investigators and the autopsy doctors. One, all of the bodies had been moved. There was blood transference from one victim to another, and they couldn't understand how that happened because not all the victims died together at the same table. It's not like they all slumped over and got blood on each other after being shot. They yeah. were at different tables. But a couple of those victims had blood transfers on them from other victims, suggesting that they had been closer together. That's the first problem that they have, and I have a theory about that, but I haven't proven it yet. That's why I say the Columbine book is continuing, because there will be stuff added down the road. But the bullet trajectories of the victims in the library as well do not line up. They were also shot from lower to upper. They were shot in the back. The entrance wounds are in the back on most of the victims and go from lower to upper. Now, people say, well, maybe they stood up and Harrison Klebold were down on their knees or they were hiding or whatever. No, because no witness says that Harrison Klebold or, or whoever the suspects were in the library ever got down on their knees and shoot it up. But Neil Gardner, who was in the parking lot behind his vehicle, he was the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department school resource officer, said, quote, a man in black suddenly came down the hill, looked up at the library and fired into the windows. Now, most people would say, okay, that explains it. That's how the kids in the library got shot. The only problem is Jeffco in their official report does not say that they were shot from anybody outside the school. And remember, at the time the Columbine kids in the library were shot, Harrison Klebold were both in there. So who is this guy that Neil Gardner even admits he sees shooting in the library windows? Who is this guy? The autopsy evidence and the CSI bullet trajectory in the autopsies proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that these children were shot at different angles than what would have been possible for two suspects standing in the library shooting at them. Wow. This is some wild stuff, Bill. I'm telling you, this is some thought-provoking material. And uh, like I said, I'm not sure where to put my pin as far as what <laughs> I believe just yet, but I do. Yeah. I have always felt that there was something more to this story than the mainstream has let us know. It seems like too big of an event than just what we've been told. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, you, you leave a lot of food for thought here in this conversation, and I definitely want to emphasize that you've got to get this material in total up on your site because I know oh, yeah. people definitely want to see this stuff. You're the only one doing this kind of work, yep. and you got to get it up there for folks to look at because yep. uh, right all now – Yeah, all my free time is dedicated to getting it up there. All right. When I get home at night, I go from 5 o'clock till 1 o'clock in the morning just – shoving it up as fast as I can and rendering the video out to flash video to embed it in the web pages and everything. Nice, nice. Yeah, because folks are definitely going to want to hear, going to want to see some of this material and stuff. And uh, hopefully, if not by the time they hear this interview, then uh, 
you know, in a couple of weeks or something like that, definitely. Uh, you should try and get it up for the anniversary because I'm sure you're going to get blown away by hits and stuff by then. But all right, we touched on that. Is there anything else you want to talk about before I wrap it up? Um, there is one thing that is, whether it's suspicious, whether it's just, you know, bad luck for two people, you have uh, two Columbine students uh, who who managed to survive April 20th, and they went on to college, and they were both a boyfriend and girlfriend at Columbine, and they ended up at Virginia Tech, and they nearly escaped being killed because they would have been in the class that Cho went into but the girl forgot her keys, and when she went back into the apartment, she couldn't find them. Wait. And that's what saved him. By the time she found her keys, he had already started shooting, and people were saying, hey, don't go to class, there's a shooting. Wow, that's bizarre yep. to, to survive two shootings like that. Mm-hmm. That's just strange. That's one of those weird synchronicities that you just don't know what to make of. Yeah. The other thing that will give people food for thought, and this is one thing I, I think why Columbine is a continuing saga even today, is that there was a girl who was there on April 20th. She saw the shooting, um, and they went to interview her, and her phone was disconnected. They could They went to the house. There was nobody at the house, and so they let it drop. The next school year... She was signed up to go to school there, but she never showed up for school, even though her parents and her had registered her there. And Jeffco investigators asked, you know, Neil Gardner, you know, do you know if this girl is still going to school there? And he says, well, she's registered, but she never showed up. And they call her house and the phone's disconnected and they don't know what to do. And that ends the investigation into that. She's one of at least two dozen students like that that they never bother to follow up to find out where these kids went. Their phone numbers are disconnected and they're gone. And I'm thinking to myself, if you've got a kid registered for school that does not show up, you don't drop it. You send somebody to the house. They always do. Yeah. They don't just let that go. Yeah, it makes you think maybe these are kids that, you know, know the truth about what happened and, and are, are, you know, hiding out. They don't yeah. want to deal with those. Oh, hey, they had one kid that he disappeared. His his parents disconnected their phone, and they're on the road on the run. They finally find a cell phone number for this kid, and I think it was his parents' cell phone. They call him, and he says, oh, yeah. He says, you know, we haven't been answering our cell phone, but he says, yeah, we've been getting messages all the time. He says, I really can't talk to you about Columbine. My parents and I are on the road, and we're just going from state to state. We never know where we're going to be from one day to another. And that was it, and then hung up on the investigator. Strange. Yeah. I don't know what to make of this, Bill. I don't know what to make of it. I'm a little tweaked out in general. I hope I make it through the week here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll sort of leave it at that here. There's, there's definitely a lot more material we could go over, but we've already gone like nearly two and a half hours, so yeah. I, don't, I don't want to uh, take up too much more of your time. And I know folks can definitely check out your website, and hopefully soon all the material will be on there. Yeah. Uh, what do you have planned for the future? You know, Tell people about the Phantom Chasers website and the other research you do. And, you know, when we can expect more from ColumbineConspiracy.com. Okay. Um, on the ColumbineConspiracy.com, all but the last two chapters of the book uh, will be up there in two weeks. 
Uh, the last two chapters are the most complicated. They, they basically, I put all of it together in the last two chapters. The second to last chapter is the New World Order and then conclusions. I, I basically have to tie all of Columbine together right there, and conclusions is not that big of a deal. But the rest of those chapters from special operations back to the start will all be up there in two weeks. Um, the website itself will not only have the chapters of the book, but anywhere where a student is making a statement or where I claim they're making a stu uh, statement, you will see a little grayed out link next to their name. You click that and it will bring their statement up so you can read it in your, uh, for yourself. Uh, so that means all of the government documents will be available on the website for anyone to download. If they have DSL or broadband, they will be able to download about $1,700 worth of documents for free. Oh, wow. I'm sure Jeffco likes that. Yeah, well, the hell with them. <laughs> They're government documents, and I can win my case in court, and they know it. That's why they've left me alone since then, because I hand them out on DVDs all the time. Nice. People say, hey, can I have the Columbine documents? Yeah, here's the DVD. Nice, nice. Yeah. Now, Phantom Chasers in general, the next bit of research that I, I'm going to be doing is I have a lot of the news footage on this, is I'm going to go ahead and go into Virginia Tech. There is a lot of weirdness there with Cho and that whole thing where the parents were basically given a payoff and said, quit crying about your dead children, here's your payoff, go away. Uh, there was a lot of controversy. Even Anderson Cooper got into that on uh, Anderson Cooper 360. You know, why did these parents just take all this money and, and decide to quit asking questions of the police department? You yeah. know? So I've got his news footage questioning uh, the Blacksburg uh, police chief on that. So that'll be my next thing. I've got a lot of the police documents on that. I don't have them all, but that'll be the next big area of research. Um, Phantom Chasers deals with a lot of different areas, as you've seen. There's paranormal, there's politics, sociology. Um, I'm going to go back into the uh, paranormal uh, aspect of the Roswell crash, uh, some of the documents around that. So people will start seeing documents and witness statements popping up there on that. Uh, Phantom Chasers, with all the different subject areas, eventually within a year, uh, every subject category will have at least one story in it within a year that will have video, audio, and government documents to go along with it. Nice, nice. All right, Bill. Well, we'll wrap it up here. We've covered a lot of material, and as I said, uh, I'm not really sure where to put my mind on this story, but it, you definitely raised just so many questions and mm -hmm. in, in a timely fashion here for the 10th anniversary of the event. And I hope more people look at the Columbine story and look at the information that you've got on the website there and, and come to their own conclusions, and hopefully a lot more of that material will be on there soon so folks can take a look at it. And uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show here, giving us so much time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, this has been one of my favorite topics of interest that I really haven't had anyone to talk about it with. Yeah. And so to have you on the show has just been a really fun experience for me. Well, I've had fun being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it's such a tragic event that uh, that we had to talk about. But at the same time, you know, it's important that, there is somebody looking at this story, and then that's you. So I thank you, and hopefully we can have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future uh, to talk more about the Columbine story and some of the other stuff on Phantom Chasers and uh, really delve some more into what you think is the big-picture story behind the entire uh, Columbine event and other subsequent events. Okay, well, thank you for having me on the show. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. 
Big, big, super huge thanks to William Zabel for coming on the show and giving us so much time. In addition to the over two-hour conversation we had here for the show, William and I ended up chatting for probably close to an hour after the program was over. I almost wished I had taped that part of the conversation as well. It was just an amazing discussion on all things conspiratorial. You'll definitely be hearing more from William Zabel on BOA Audio in the future. Until then, though, you can always check out William's websites. They are as follows, www.columbineconspiracy.com and phantomchasers.com. Both of those websites, all one word, in the URL. Check them out. Lots of great information. And as William said, he is uploading lots and lots of new stuff to the columbineconspiracy.com website. As you're listening to this right now, I checked it since the interview and I was blown away by how much new stuff he had already put on there. So definitely want to stop by ColumbineConspiracy.com to check out some of that footage and other documents that he cites during this week's episode. And now, as usual, it is time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And since we're going away for a little while on our spring break, I want to close out this middle portion of Season 4 and leave us with a very positive email from a great listener who had some fun stuff to say and really brightened my day with his email. He is Trevor, no hometown listed, and here's what he has to say. Mr. Benal, please, sir, stop reading from the audio quality complainer, Phoebes. I and all your fans love your raw feel and the character of it. I love the way the audio from your end has a from-the-ether sound while your guests are clear. I also love the mysterious clicking sounds, which I've always assumed is you lighting up a smoke as you contemplate the strange depth of your guest's recent bizarre claim. Immediately you can be visualized as sitting back in your chair and the smoke circling your head. That rocks from a listening perspective. I salute you, Tim. Best damn esoteric show on the internet. If I sell my latest screenplay and you read this email on the air, I will be a significant financial contributor just because I've been a four-year listener. I'm pretty sure I've contributed in the past. I'll have to look it up. Signed, Trevor. No hometown listed. Although occupation is listed, he is a screenwriter behind Outer Limits and They Wait. I'll have to check those films out. Thank you for writing in, Trevor. I really appreciate it. I was completely blown away by this email, much like last week's email from Sweden, but this was a completely different angle and another great email from an awesome BOA Audio listener. For starters, I wish you the best of luck in selling your latest screenplay. If it leads to a significant financial contribution to BOA, that would be awesome. But either way, I wish you the best of luck, Trevor, in selling your screenplay. I'll have to check our email database here to see if you've contributed in the past, but the name does ring a bell, so it's very possible. And if that's the case, I thank you for your contribution. It definitely helped keep BOA on the air throughout the last four years. Regarding the audio quality complainer, Phoebes. I don't know what a Phoebe is, really, but I'll just take that as a pejorative, and we'll laugh together about that. As I've said in the past, I like to read the emails from all different angles, and I don't want the end segment here to be a fluff segment of just people telling me how great the show is. So I do put forward uh, the opinions of folks who complain about the audio quality, but thankfully those are few and far between And then I get great emails from folks like Trevor here who sort of pump me up and keep me going and say, hey, wait a minute, dude, the sound quality's not that bad. We definitely do try to embrace the raw feel of the show. It is 
very handmade program. We don't use a lot of fancy stuff. I know it may sound like that at the beginning when we do the funky mixes for the intro music, but really all the equipment and all the stuff we use for the show is bargain material stuff, and it is a raw program, so I'm glad that you enjoy the raw feel of it. And to solve the mystery here, that clicking sound is definitely me lighting up a smoke while I'm conducting an interview. I do smoke like a chimney during these interviews because I'm sort of shackled down in my chair here and I can't really get up and get around. And some of these interviews go about three hours or so. So I do smoke a lot of butts while I'm doing an interview. And when you hear that sort of dragging click sound in the background during an interview, that is exactly what it is. And sometimes I take them out and other times I leave them in depending on how anal I'm feeling about the editing of the program. In short, thank you so much for writing in, Trevor. I really appreciate it. Your email brightened my day, really made my week, possibly made my month, to be honest with you. I was just completely blown away by that. I'm still sort of on the fence as to whether Trevor's being sarcastic here, but I'm hoping that he's not, uh, because I really enjoy the email, and uh, it made my day, so... Thank you again for writing in. Trevor, stay tuned to the program. We've got tons of great stuff coming up at the close of Season 4. Nine more episodes. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. I also want to do a little throwback and update to last week's BOA Audio listener feedback. I have heard back from Claus Jaeger, and the Swedish ufology episode is in the works as I speak. So there's a very, very good chance we will have a Swedish ufology episode sometime here as we close out season four. I don't want to make any absolute promises, but the connections have been made and we're uh, progressing towards putting together that episode. So stay tuned to BOA Audio for that. And big thanks to Claus Jaeger for his help in laying down the groundwork for that episode. He is the man. I may have to dub him our BOA Sweden correspondent. Just because we're going on spring break doesn't mean we don't want to hear from you great BOA Audio listeners. I love the emails, not just from the international folks, but from all the great Banal of America Audio supporters and listeners and the people who have stuck with this program for a long time or just discovered it recently in the last few months. If you want to have your voice heard here at the end of the program, that's pretty simple to do. There's three methods. Either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to Banal of America and click the contact button. And the third method is joining up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Fantastic group of folks there. They're like a little family of esoteric enthusiasts, but we talk about a lot of other great stuff too, like TV shows, movies, and sports. Awesome community, and we'd love to have you join us at the US of E. So those are the three methods, the email, the contact button, and the forum. Any of those puts your correspondence into my hands and in turn into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag for a future edition of this segment here at the end of the program. Up next, let's roll into the credits and thanks portion of the show. You know who they are. We talk about them here at the end of the program every week, but they are awesome. They are the BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., who I just heard is getting married. Congratulations to Joe V., Regan Lee, Tina Sana, Richard Thomas, Paul Black, and Lasha Seniuk. They are the amazing BOA staff. I couldn't do what I do without them. They provide so much amazing content for Banal of America. It's just unbelievable. 
Monday through Friday, a wealth of thought-provoking columns, looking at so much material that we just don't have a chance to get to here on the program. And sometimes they inspire me to look up a guest and get people on the show, like Stephen Rourke, who we had on the show earlier in Season 4. That was directly via a Rochelle Hawks piece. And I'm sure they're going to be carrying the load here at BOA for the next month while we're on spring break. I'm going to try and contribute some written stuff here at the website. It's been a while since I did some writing. But for the most part, I'd say it's going to be 90% BOA staff. And that's why I thank them and tip my cap to them. They are the gears of the BOA machine. We would cease to exist without their strong support and consistent contributions to the website. As we say week in and week out here on the program, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, you're only getting half of the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Much like the year-end episodes at the beginning of January, please allow me to askew the normal BOA donation request. I did just pay out a hefty tax bill, but at the same time, I don't feel quite right asking people to make donations when we're going on break here for a month and we're not going to be providing you with quality BOA audio material. Save those donations for when I do the big push at the end of Season 4 to clear the books and get us back in the black for Season 5. So for now, I'll just say thank you to all the great folks who have made donations so far this year. Your generosity has been just breathtaking, and I really appreciate it. And I sincerely thank all the great folks who have made donations to BOA and BOA Audio. Know in your hearts that you are a big reason why this program and the website are freely available to all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Normally here I preview what's coming up next week, but I've already beaten to death the news that we're going on spring break. We'll be back sometime in May. I'm hoping to be back on May 11th, but I'm realistically looking at May 18th. I've got a lot of feelers out for future interviews. I have a skeleton of what we're going to be doing here for the final nine episodes of BOA Audio Season 4. And we are very close to finalizing the Season 4 finale guest. Of course, I'm not going to tell you too much about that right now. But we will be back mid-May with all new episodes. We've got nine more shows slotted here for Season 4. And big plans for Season 5, of course, coming up in the fall of 09. But that's a long, long way off, and we don't have time to talk about that right now. So I'll just say keep an eye on the website, and we'll have some news on our big return in mid-May and some teasers on who to expect on the program for those final nine episodes. I've got some cool guests in mind, and hopefully those will work out, and people will really dig those. And on that note, we close out this massive edition of BOA Audio. Big, big, super huge thanks once again to William Zabel for coming on the show. Fascinating conversation. I look forward to talking to William again. And I hope a lot of folks who heard the episode check out his stuff at ColumbineConspiracy.com. And finally, I just want to say have a great month or so to all the awesome BOA Audio listeners. I can't thank you enough for being so supportive of this program. I'm just blown away by the download numbers this show has and the correspondence we get from people all over the world and the U.S. and Canada who enjoy the program. You are the fuel behind this entire enterprise that has been all of America. This is a veritable grassroots community organized program. We don't have major funding. We don't have advertisers. We are entirely of the people, by the people, and for the people 
you are awesome, and I can't thank you enough for supporting us. Have a great, safe month away from me. I'll be back mid-May, all new episodes of BOA Audio. I'm going to miss talking to you week in and week out, but I know based on past experience that this month is going to fly by, and I'll be talking to you again in no time flat. Until BOA Audio returns to the internet airwaves, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.